0: Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. span the ocean. Kei Kalawaka na wasaliwa. Number 5 Squadron, Royal New Zealand Air Force Over two days, on the 23rd and 24th of September 2016, current and past members of Number 5 Squadron, Royal New Zealand Air Force celebrated two major milestones with a very special reunion. The first of the milestones was the squadron marking 75 years since its formation. The squadron was formed on the 18th of November 1941 as No. 5 General Reconnaissance Squadron. The official formation of that unit occurred on the same day that the second of their short Singapore flying boats arrived at Prince's Wharf in Suva following a lengthy ferry flight from Salita in Singapore. The squadron was the first RNZF flying boat squadron to be formed and it was charged with the mission of patrolling the shipping lanes and seaways around Fiji, Tonga and other Pacific regions searching for enemy submarines or surface raiders and with the secondary role of search and rescue. The squadron's first commander was squadron leader Eric Lewis. Two more short Singapore's arrived later in December 1941 bringing the total number to four although one of them was quickly written off in a takeoff accident. By that time the Japanese had suddenly entered the war making the squadron's presence in Fiji all the more essential. On the 24th of June 1942, the squadron was reorganized and expanded. Eight Vickers Vincent biplane bombers were transferred from No. 4 Squadron to No. 5 Squadron and they became the squadron's first land-based aeroplanes. The squadron was now retitled No. 5 Army Cooperation Squadron and based at Nasori, the Vincents made short and medium range patrols as well as working with the New Zealand Army who were based in Fiji. Meanwhile, the short Singapore's continued their longer range patrols. On the 13th of September 1942, the Singapore's moved from their ad-hoc base at Prince's Wharf to the nearby RNZAF station Lathala Thala Bay, where a purpose-built flying boat station had been built by the New Zealand government. This place would become the centre of RNZAF maritime operations in the Pacific for the next two and a half decades, by this time, the squadron had been redesignated once again as No. 5 Bomber Reconnaissance Squadron. With the impending introduction of consolidated PBY Catalinas to RNZAF service, the squadron's crews began to be transferred to a U.S. Navy Catalina unit for retraining, and the squadron was reduced in size. The last short Singapore operation flown by the squadron took place on the 27th of November 1942 and the final Vickers Vincent patrol three days later on the 30th of November. On that same day the squadron was disbanded. However delays that arose with the deliveries of the New Zealand Catalinas and the posting away of the US Navy Catalina squadron meant a large gap in patrolling around Fiji. And so on the 1st of March 1943 two of the Singapore's were reactivated and former number five squadron crews began patrolling in them again. As it was a reduced unit This was known simply as the Singapore Flight, and was not officially No. 5 Squadron. This only continued until the 16th of April 1943, when the RNZF Catalinas began arriving they formed No. 6 Flying Boat Squadron at Laothada Bay, which was initially made up mainly from air crews and ground crews who had previously served on No. 5 Squadron. It was not actually until July 1944 that No. 5 Squadron would again reform, initially forming within No. 3 Flying Boat Operational Training Unit. The squadron was now also equipped with Consolidated Catalinas just like No. 6 Squadron. It was now No. 5 Flying Boat Squadron and it served in Fiji to October 1944 when the unit was moved to Luganville Seaplane Base on the Seagon Channel at Espirito Santo in the New Hebrides. From there they made operational patrols and they flew Dumbo rescue missions Dumbo missions were picking up downed pilots or aircrew, often though, it followed bombing raids or transiting squadrons between the islands, just in case anyone came down in the water. The squadron also established a detachment at this time in the Admiralty Islands. As well as the consolidated PBY-5 Catalinas, the squadron also began operating the Boeing canada built pb PV-2B1 Catalinas, which were a license-built version, almost identical. When the war ended, No. 5 Squadron returned to Lothala Bay in Fiji and they continued as a defensive presence there with their Catalinas and also continued to provide search and rescue cover. In August 1953 the first short Sunderland flying boat arrived from Britain to join No. 5 Squadron and that type would eventually see the Catalinas phased out of service. The squadron would continue to serve in Fiji with their Sunderlands for the next 13 years. In 1966, No. 5 Squadron relocated to RNZAF Base Fenuapai in Auckland to re-equip with the new Lockheed P-3B Orion. The first of these was delivered to New Zealand on the 27th of September 1966, and a new era began. As the squadron refocused to land-based operations, the Sunderlands were phased out by April 1967. The P-3 Orion was a huge step forward for the RNZAF. The other milestone was celebrating 50 years of operation of the P3 Orion. It's now served for 50 years and in that time it has become an icon of the Air Force and a household name with the public, most notably for the many maritime search and rescue operations that the crews perform every year around New Zealand, the Pacific and down in Antarctic waters. It's also well known for its relief work in the Pacific when disasters strike and in the past decade. The Orion has been a pirate hunter in the Middle East. In 1985, another P 3 Orion was purchased from the Royal Australian Air Force, bringing the total number to six in service. Around the same period, the fleet began undergoing a major upgrade program known as Project Rigel, which re winged the aeroplanes and totally overhauled and updated their electronics package, becoming the P 3K. K for Kiwi. In 2005, Another major upgrade to the airframes began with another overhaul of electronic surveillance and search systems and the introduction of glass cockpit features and modern avionics packages. Following that overhaul, the aircraft were now designated the P3K2. Today the Orion's continue to give tremendous service to New Zealand thanks to the men and women who fly and maintain them. The 75 years of service given by this most important squadron was marked by the reunion, which was opened by the current commanding officer, Wing Commander Daniel D.J. Hunt. I do apologise for the sound quality. It's actually exactly how it sounded in the massive concrete hangar, so it isn't actually a problem with the recording. Please bear with it for a few minutes, and then the sound quality improves dramatically. Here's D.J. Hunt.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome. I'm Wing Commander DJ Hunt, the current CEO of No. 5 Squadron and on behalf of the men and women currently serving I'd like to welcome you to the first event to commemorate the 75th anniversary of the formation of No. 5 Squadron and also the 50th anniversary of operating the P3 Arrive. The weekend itself, we start off with the informal meet and greet which we have tonight and the whole idea of this is to just uh, have people mingle, introduce themselves, reacquaint with friends, colleagues that they may not have seen for a while. Tomorrow we have uh, an open day and that event there will just allow you to come, look around the hangar, our five squadron headquarters, the aircraft and some of our training devices. Again, have a look at what 5 Squadron looks like today. And then tomorrow evening we'll have the formal dinner which will provide culmination of the weekend's events. Now tonight is fairly informal but before we continue there are a couple of formalities and some introductions I'd like to do. So first of all I'd like to uh, thank our corporate sponsors and uh, these are companies that we partner with who've uh, provided support and sponsorship for the uh, weekend and without whose support then uh, the weekend certainly wouldn't be occurring as we have planned. So the first uh, company I'd like to thank is uh, Marox, second is Becca, and the third is L3. Uh, Marux is a, a local New Zealand company who provide us with uh, training and support um, software. Uh, Becca, uh, which is an engineering company, and they again are part of our software support team. And uh, we do spend quite a bit of time with Becca and their employees. And finally, L3 Systems. r 3 was the, uh, the US company, which was uh, instrumental in the prime contractor in the upgrade of the uh, P3K2. Uh, These three companies have uh, all uh, donated funds for the evening, so I think it's appropriate that uh, we express uh, our appreciation for that, please. There's another group that I'd uh, like to uh, mention as well, and that's the uh, Five Squadron Association. So the Five Squadron Association have uh, been partners in developing uh, this weekend and assisted us. As part of that, I'd like to invite their uh, president, Gordon Bragg, former CO Five, to come forward and say a few words. Thank you, Gordon.
2: Um, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you can. Some people can uh, hear a bit more than I did. I, I'm sure that. This address would have been very interesting, but I didn't hear a word of it. Um, can anybody hear this? Good. Um, I'm uh, Gordon Ragg, I'm the President of the Fire Squadron Association, and I just want to make a brief acknowledgement of the uh, excellent work that the committee has done on your behalf, the, the Association members' behalf, in helping the squadron make a success of this weekend and uh, acknowledge that the association is one of the major, if not the major, financial supporter um, among the very many sponsors that there are. Now we've had many messages of uh, goodwill, good wishes and apologies uh, from the members of the association who can't be here for various reasons and uh, I just want to read out the names um, for those of you who can be um, I'll read them in the order that they were received. Uh, so uh, they might bring back some memories. Liz Billcliffe, Graham Sims, John Clements, Daryl Simpson, Peter Mackay, Harold Thompson, John Boyce, F Ness, Roger Langley, Norm Richardson, uh, Mel Gunton, I was hoping was going to be here tomorrow. Oh, Mel's here. Wonderful. Um, Neil Harris, Martin Passfield, Frank Coory, Dave Stromquist, here is Navy, Trevor Colson, Alan Papish, Derek Scott, Peter Hears, Murray Peacock Steve Dean Larry Mitchell Ian Walker Dave Greenlees Barry Blackall John and Christine Cross Randy Stone Bob Frecklington Ivan Tootle, Bruce Oliver Barry Gilliver Mark Cordelia Larry Laveau, U.S. Navy, Peter Ireland, Doug Wickland, Ken Milne, Jerry Wiltshire, Keith Hodlin, and Alan Jones. And Alan is the, um, he was on marine flight for many, many years, all through the 1950s, and he's the owner and um, the lender of the excellent paintings that will be on display uh, tomorrow afternoon and tomorrow night. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much Gordon. I'd just like to uh, once again say thank you very much to the Association for the support they've uh, given uh, to this weekend. As I said before, tonight is an informal event and that concludes the majority of the formalities. For the rest of the evening, uh, dinner will be served very soon over here on the the left. At 1900 we will be having a cake cutting ceremony with uh, two members of the squadron. And finally, at uh, approximately 18:20, it may get a little bit noisy. We have an uh, aircraft taxiing pass and returning from a uh, from a check flight. I think it uh, probably is quite symbolic of the fact that uh, it's our 75th anniversary. Uh, and even though celebrations are going on, there's uh, still a job to be done, and uh, the squadron just gets on and does it. So that includes the uh, formalities. please yourselves, mix, mingle, reacquite yourselves with our current squadron members and previous sports members. Thank you.
0: I'm at the number five squadron reunion for the 75th anniversary and the 50th anniversary of the Orion and I'm here with my escort for the night pilot officer Jack Barnett and uh, you're one of the youngest members of the squadron aren't you Jack?
3: Yeah I've only just arrived I've only been on squadron about four months uh, I've just finished my AWO training over in Australia yep. so I've just come back here I'm about to start conversion training uh, onto the P3K to Orion. You must be pretty excited about that. Yeah it's a pretty awesome platform um, the things we do with that aircraft uh, for New Zealand and other countries is pretty amazing so I'm really excited to get on board and uh, get into a squadron life. So you, you, what does your role in, involve? Uh, so I'm going to be a information manager on the P3K to Orion, uh, so you're overlooking the running of the tactical scenario uh, along with the tactical coordinator, uh, looking into what all the other People on aircraft are doing, uh, such as the radar and sensor operators managing all that, doing a lot of the tactical comms as well, going off the aircraft. Uh, you're pretty much a jack of all trades. Is that as that role on the aircraft? Yeah.
0: Cool. Sure. Well, we've got some people here tonight who were on the Orion uh, right from the beginning. There's there's delivery pilots here and uh, a delivery crew. And I guess the Orion—it's the same aircraft uh, sitting out there on the tarmac, but it's changed
3: a hell of a lot. Oh yeah, it's—it's uh, it's definitely changed a lot. Uh, yeah, we're here for the 50th anniversary for the P3 Orion. Uh, obviously, nowadays it's the P3K2 Orion. It's gone through a lot of upgrades. A lot of things have changed. Uh, it's the base base airframe still the same, um, but the capabilities we can provide with the aircraft nowadays are vastly different to when we first got it 50 years ago.
0: And, uh, you know, what's it like life on the squadron? Is it, is it a good squadron to be on?
3: Yeah, life in the Air Force in general is, uh, is pretty cool. It's definitely the most flexible uh, job I've ever had in terms of your working hours. Uh, squadron life's great. Everyone seems to get along really well, especially with everyone living in such close proximity to each, to each other. Yep. They form pretty good relationships. Um, yeah, socialising with everyone. Everyone likes to get out and have fun. Uh, and working life, obviously when you're working, it's it's, uh, it's pretty full on. Yep. Um, but yeah, there's definitely time to have a bit of fun.
0: And uh, of course, with the Orion's, you get around the world a little bit too, so you must be looking forward to a few trips
3: away. Yeah, I, I can't wait to get overseas. Um, the Orion goes all over the show. Like, is included in lots of different exercises all over the world. Uh, so yeah, it's definitely the squadron to be on if you want to see the world.
0: Absolutely. Well, good luck with your your career on the Rhine, It's uh, it's going to go places. Yeah, definitely is. Thanks. Cheers. I'm speaking with Gordon Ragg, who's the uh, president of the Five Squadron Association. Hi, Gordon. Hello. How are you doing? Great, great.
4: Well <laughs> yeah, what a big event for the squadron, isn't it? Oh yeah, it it is. It's a good reunion. Um, The 75th uh, anniversary of the squadron and the 50th um, anniversary of the first P3 arriving in uh, New Zealand has just given us a great opportunity for a a reunion of a lot of old uh, squadron members. Um, There's going to be over 300 of them here, well over 300. Wow! Uh, Just remembering some of the best days of their lives, really. Absolutely. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about your history with the squadron? Um, I came here. Uh, in fact, I was a truckie, uh, so um, it wasn't uh, kind of a natural progression. But I came here in 1977 and converted onto the P3, yep. P3B then, and uh, I um, was appointed squadron commander in 1978. Okay. And yep. I was here for about seven years altogether. Right. Uh, I, was a, I was a squadron commander for three year, three and a bit years.
0: Right. Okay. And uh, in that time, you must have uh, seen some interesting things with the with the Orion. You would have got around the place a bit. And yes, we
4: did. We were very. We had. A, it was a very busy time. Um, and uh, I can't remember how many the hours we flew, but we did fly uh, a lot more hours in those days than they're flying currently. They just um, and there was more um, ASW time and. Uh, one of the highlights of the period that I was on the squadron was that um, we won the Fincastle Trophy for the first time for about 16 years, oh, nice. and uh, subsequently won it um, three times in the next uh, four competitions. Well, that's so good.
0: we felt pretty good about that. Yeah, absolutely. And the Fincastle trophy is very prestigious, it's, uh, it's a
4: trophy between four nations isn't it? Yeah, the, yes it is, um, I don't think it's going at the moment, No, I think it's faded out, yeah. but um, at that stage, yes it was, um, uh, to us and to all the competitive nations, it was uh, very prestigious. Yes, yeah. Yeah. absolutely. Are you surprised that the, the Orion's still going now after all these no. years? No, no I'm not, it's uh, the best aeroplane in the world for the job. And um, in that period of time, the uh, Royal New Zealand Air Force had um, uh, taken uh, delivery of the best aeroplanes in the world for the jobs at the time, you know. The yep. C-130 was the best at its, at its time. Yep. The Skyhawk was the best for the role at the time. Yep. The Iroquois was the best for its role at the time. And the P-3 is certainly the best for its role in the world. And um, these, these aeroplanes are still right up the front of uh, maritime capable aeroplanes in the world. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's not much that could replace it. No. No. So um, can you tell us a little bit about the association and how people can uh, find out about that? Yeah, the association is um, uh, the membership. We've got a membership of uh, about 550 and uh, we keep regular communication. We've got an excellent website. Um, where people can keep up to date with happenings on the squadron and um, happenings and among other members and all kinds of news, yep. and uh, we try to keep um, people informed about what's going on, um, and we let them know when uh, one of their old uh, old friends dies. Yep. Um, but you know the times that people have spent on uh, the squadron and in the air force were some of the best times in their lives, the most memorable times in their lives. Yes. And so. I think having um, the facility of an association like ours is really good for people to be able to remember and then renew acquaintances every now and again, very precious time. Absolutely, so how often would you have a reunion? Uh, well we have an annual general meeting uh, and we normally have at least one other um, social function. Uh, but. To get the number of people together that we've got coming to this weekend is very unusual. Yes. Because yep. people are coming from all over the country yep. and from Australia. Yep. Uh, so yeah, people have made a big effort to get here.
0: Absolutely, and it's a, it's a really special one with the yeah. 75th of the squadron and 50th yeah. of the Ryan coinciding. So.
4: Yeah, and it's a long time, you know. Um, we didn't ever have aeroplanes that lasted that long. The Sunderland, how long did that last? Um, uh, 14 years? Yeah, something like that.
5: Yeah.
4: Um, and uh, aeroplanes before that maybe three years That's Right. and um, uh, now we're into aeroplanes that are just kind of um, ubiquitous really uh, these aeroplanes are just every bit as good as they were when they were first produced for the for the role
6: yeah,
4: yeah. mind you i i wouldn't um they're full of equipment that i wouldn't understand
0: yeah exactly yeah yeah but yeah, they kind of uh, yeah They look look the same on the outside but yeah very different on the inside.
4: Yes, they got some really good gear, really top class world leading gear. Excellent, well thank you very much for your
0: time. That's all right Dave, eh? yeah,
5: cheers. Very good.
0: I'm speaking with Peter Colpin. Hi Peter. Hi, how are you? Great, great. Now you were on the Short Sunderland and the Orion weren't you? Correct. Can you tell me when you started on the squadron? It
6: would have been about 1959, 1960. Okay. Uh, yep, um, yeah, around about 60, uh, I went up to Fiji. Yeah. Right,
5: right.
0: And uh, what was your role?
6: I was an air signaller, okay, yep. and, uh, which involved the radar and radio, even trained as air gunner. <laughs> that oh, was. Right. Uh, Never used an anchor though.
0: (laughs) Right. So uh, you must have had a bit of fun firing off the guns though.
6: Yes, uh, but uh, in uh, the hot tropical climate uh, with the aircraft bouncing all around and trying to to load uh, ammunition up to shoot, it uh, could bring on quite a lot of air sickness at times. uh, It wasn't all fun.
0: Right, yeah. yeah. Uh,
6: But uh, it was good to pop off a few. Yeah.
0: So did you uh, did you do many uh, air-sea rescues
6: or? Oh yes, involved in quite a few uh, uh, searches and so on. Um, I can't recall specifically, specifically anything. Uh, I know we uh, we did find the odd yacht and so on. Okay. Uh, yeah.
0: It's a really important role of the squadron, isn't it? Oh yes, uh, yes. Yeah. Even, even today, and it's correct. That's uh, just uh, it's amazing how many people they must have saved over the years.
6: Oh, indeed. I wouldn't know how many, but there's obviously quite a few. Yeah, yes.
0: yeah. Um What did you prefer working on? Was it the uh, Sunderland or the Orion?
6: Well, my time on Orions was relatively short. It was a it was a step into luxury after the uh, the Sunderlands, yeah. but I think overall I have a, a softer spot for the Sunderlands. Yeah. It always felt safe on the, the old flying boat. Uh, it was uh, lumbered along. Yeah. Um, <coughs> rather than doing 400 knots at, uh, <laughs> in a P3. Yeah. The speed didn't worry me, but it was quite a different environment. Absolutely. And it was very comfortable too, air-conditioned and all the rest, uh, yeah. So
0: as the air signaler, were you doing a bit of cooking in the
6: galley as well? Indeed, yes, so, uh, I think I learnt my culinary skills in the Sunderland, yeah. <laughs> uh, basic foods, you know, uncooked potatoes and beans and things. Pe- two promises. Yeah. <clears throat> very close to the, the fuel dump valves, which used to worry me a bit. Uh, yeah.
0: And how about this reunion? It's, uh, it's great to see everybody turning out, isn't it?
6: Oh, there's a lot of old faces here, yes, uh, but a lot of people that come beyond, uh, after my time, so yeah. I, I don't know them, you know. But yeah. uh, there's a few old faces. Yeah,
0: yeah absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, and I hope you enjoy the evening. Pleasure. Cheers. Thanks, Dave. So I'm sitting here with a good mate uh, from the old days, and uh, that's uh, Mike Carston, who when I knew you, you were an armorer, yep. and then you went on to become, what was it, the trade?
7: I, um, after eight years of being in the armament trade, I remustered to Air Ordnance, which was essentially a, a sideways step for an armorer, yep. which is the on-boards weapons specialist on the P3 Orion.
0: Right, right. So um, tell me about your time on 5 Squadron. Um,
7: first person the fire squadron back in the late 80s, 88, 89 as a armor mechanic um, did a six-month tour here which was a standard tour for um, mechanics. Uh, just to give an appreciation of the aircraft which uh, for us involved uh, replenishing stores, sonar boys, smoke markers, um, servicing the weapons systems on the aircraft, the yep. uh, retro launcher, yep. sonar boys, um, and, and uh, the other associated bits and pieces that use the weapon systems.
0: Yeah. And flares and stuff like that, I suppose?
7: Um, not, not as such. Uh, the, we had the uh, Mark 25 um, smoke float, which uh, shot out the back, yep. uh, which was a Mark on top uh, store. Yep. Um, Sonar Boy's um and that was essentially it for disposable stores uh back in the day there was no uh, bombing we occasionally did um once a year would have done a um mark 44 torpedo upload oh yes um, we did a few drills doing that but uh, while i was on squadron as a mech we didn't uh, actively do a, a torpedo program
0: okay and then
7: uh, you went away from the squadron for a while? Went away from, so went, went around the other um, armament sections uh, within the Air Force, um, then did my senior course, senior trade training course uh, in 1990, got posted down to Wigram which is where I met you, yeah, yeah. Um, and then name. back in 94 um, applied for a remaster to air ordnance and came back as a uh, air ordnanceman, air crew. On the aircraft, did four four and a half years.
0: So, tell me about the training to uh, become an air ordnance. Uh, of, uh, wasn't an officer. Was a no, a, no, ex- it your?
7: No, no. I'd done eight years by that stage, so it was um, immediate. I was a corporal armourer yep. at um, Woodburn, working at uh, Saint Small Aircraft Maintenance Flight on the A four. Um, then came to five had done my 8 years air crew so it was an automatic promotion to sergeant Okay, yep. so essentially involved taking the stores that my colleagues in the armoury had loaded and then uh, loading them for the in-flight application Um, making sure pilots and navigators didn't make incorrect switch hits when uh, we were using the stores Uh, as well as Photography, so did a lot of photography from the flight deck.
0: Okay.
7: Um, Looking after the uh, customs and immigration paperwork for the aircraft when it was uh, deployed overseas. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, And basically being in charge of maintaining the galley. So, you know, when we're overseas, uh, arranging for catering and provision of stores. For the crew while we're overseas,
0: so that's really the most important job on the crew. Ah, uh,
7: probably the crew's opinion. It was uh, <laughs> it, it was a very it was a very hit, hit and miss affair. You know, if if you stuffed it up, they were quick to let you know that you know they weren't happy with what you would provided. But uh, generally, no, we ate fairly well on the right. P three. Right.
0: And and when you uh, when you're flying uh, patrols, obviously the armament side comes into it and the air ordnance uh, work but what about search and rescue stuff would you be on the search and rescue flights or
7: absolutely um the ord was an integral part of the crew yeah every flight went away with an ord Um, search and rescue especially um we always had the um, the retro launcher which fired out the mark 25 um, smoke float charge ready to go and there were several positions within the aircraft that could launch a smoke um so when we had observers looking out the window if they saw anything in the water didn't matter what it was they'd punch out a smoke and the aircraft would then do a a dumbbell turn track back to the smoke and investigate that contact so the um, retro was probably one of the um more used uh, pieces of equipment in the aircraft at the time um one of the other things we used to do on search and rescues would also launch a sonar boy which would then give an appreciation of the uh, current wind and that so we knew where we'd punch out a sonar boy we'd come back three or four hours later and see where that sonar boy had drifted to and then with some software and that we had on the aircraft we could predict well if that's how it affected a sonar boy if something had gone missing off a datum there's a fair chance this is the direction we'd go right. and search for the contact.
0: Okay, well that's really, really interesting. Um, now, I know a lot of the different uh, trades on the Rhine have changed. Is there still air ordinance officers on the Rhine?
7: Uh, still air ordnance, they are no longer called air ordnance men, they are now air ordnance specialists, which is part of the gender neutral, bloody uh, politically correct mumbo jumbo of the world we live in. Yeah. Um, as are all the trades, we no longer use the word man because you know we might ex- might upset the feminists. But yeah,
0: well, fair enough, I suppose. There, oh. there, there are actually a lot of women on the cruise now, aren't there? So.
7: Absolutely, and there always was, but you know they were made of stauncher stuff than they appear to be now.
0: Yeah,
5: okay.
0: What are you? What are your um, real classic memories of the squadron? Did you have any particular rescues or anything like that that stand out?
7: Um. There was one rescue back in 97, 98, I guess, um, we'd been called out, we'd done, um, we, were, we, we were the standby crew, and um, when you're standby crew you turned up to work, did your normal duty, so I turned up to work that morning 8 o'clock, had done a normal day's work down at um, 5 Squadron Ops, had gone home, um, had just sat down in front of the news and was starting to let me tell you and my pager went off you know old school stuff you know, pages. pages yeah. um, we came to work um, did a two hour pre-flight I think it was in those days and we launched for a um, SAR off a stern trawler off the Chatham Islands that had been hit by a rogue wave and the wheelhouse had got wiped out uh, the crew had uh, retreated below decks and battened themselves in. They had no real control over steerage. They were just sitting there waiting to be rescued. Um, we launched. We knew where they were. Um, we had home to a radar contact in the likely area. It turned out to be them. Very patchy comms um, because they were below decks. Um, we established ourselves overhead them reassured them, wasn't a lot we could do, it was a very very heavy sea Um, and so it was just a waiting game we had to then try and vector a commercial boat onto their position to effect a rescue Um, so we did a radar sweep of the area there was nothing in the immediate area that no other fishy boats had been silly enough to go out on that particular day Uh, we found a contact from memory it was about 150, 160 nautical miles away Um, and so we departed to go and try and contact that uh, merchant vessel to come back and render aid Um, the boat from a Asian nation failed to respond to any radio calls Channel 16 which is universal maritime comms uh, we then descended down onto that vessel flashed landing lights, waggled wings did all the stuff you did in those days to try and make yourself known flew across their bow, got absolutely no response wow. and you know, because that would have taken them off their projected uh, track um, so we ended up finding another vessel which was 250 nautical miles away was the next from the central datum and wow. um, they immediately diverted course to come down to the stricken vehicle uh, vessel. We came back, and it was the first time in my career that we actually normally the P three shuts down one engine yep. uh, for um, endurance. We shut down two. We'd go up to twenty thousand feet or something, I believe it was. Shut down two engines and then just slowly drifted down, you know, because on two engines the P three at the time couldn't maintain altitude. Right. Uh, got down to a thousand feet or so and then started up the third engine again and just nice and slowly climbed back up shut it down and we went down through this drift down procedure two or three times from memory Um, we waited on top of the table meanwhile this merchant vessel was steaming at best speed to get to the um, stricken trawler Um, and all we we'd be in the galley you know, cooking up a bit of a meal you know the uh, Radio operators are on the radio, reassuring the crewmen of the trawler, and we're just sitting on top, drifting down, gaining altitude, drifting down. Um, we then got, got to our uh, minimum field, diverted back to Fenoipai. Um, meantime, a second P three had launched, and by the time we landed, we'd been airborne for believe it was uh, 16 and a half, 17 hours. Wow. Um, add to that, you know, I'd already been on duty for eight, nine hours previously. It had been a very, very, very long
0: night. Absolutely. Uh, so were there two air ordnance on board? Were, were you a single were, air
7: ordinances. Wow.
0: So you were you were really pushing endurance for your own personal...
7: Uh, oh, as were all the crew. I mean, um, two pilots, two engineers, you know, several um, Air Alex Tron- Air electronic operators, as they were known in those days, a couple of NAVs, um, but everyone had a role to play. There was not a lot of redundancy there.
0: And and obviously, the crew was rescued from the boat?
7: Crew, um, it was unfortunate really. Um, Just as we departed, the um, merchant vessel that had come down to uh, render aid was only, I was within 10, 15 miles from memory. It was very close. By the time the second P3 had arrived on station, um, they were alongside they were lifting the uh, stricken crew members onto the boat It had a very happy outcome Great,
0: great There must be so many stories uh, similar uh, over the 75 years of of, seven, of Number 5 Squadron um, because search and rescue has been something they've been doing forever and uh, every one of those people out there in the, at the reunion probably has Search and rescue stories that they remember, even the ground crews.
7: Absolutely, um, we'd be on patrols and that, and we'd always always carry a couple of maintenance personnel with us. And I remember even as a mech, um, go and you know did a, a Pacific uh, Norpat—they call them Northern Pacific Patrol—and you know, you end up going and investigating contacts that you're not expecting to find. Right. Um, one of my more memorable flights—we're um, on a I was the ordinance on board, and we're just on a standard maritime patrol. Um, MAROPS here in Auckland would establish a track they wanted us to fly, and their mission brief was to investigate any radar contact 60 miles either side of track and also to investigate any island, atoll, or you know, landmass along the route. Yeah. We were flying along. My narrow biz, we had a, a radar contact and we homed to it and um, we got the message over the uh, intercom, you know, you know, crew set condition, I can't remember what number it was in those days, which meant, you know, assuming positions, you know, we're going to do a rigging run on a boat. Yep. So I was up on the flight deck uh, with my camera, which was my role during a uh, stand and patrol, and uh, there was a large container vessel. Then we came down and uh, we approached it on the uh, right hand side of the vessel, out on our left hand side, um, stern to bow. And my job was to take a picture of the uh, stern, take a picture of the wheelhouse, looking for aerials and radios and that sort of nonsense. Quick couple snaps of uh, just the, the deck, and then again another photo of the bow as we went across. Um, on a patrol, if it was nothing of interest, we'd do one pass and be on our way. And we came down we did a rigging run on this boat and we departed, we're climbing back up to altitude and yeah, everyone was going back to doing what they were doing, you know, cooking or reading or what have you. One of their maintenance guys said, what sort of tanks were those on the deck? And well, what do you mean, what sort of tanks, you know, water tanks, diesel tanks, what are you talking about? Oh no, there's a couple of army tanks, You know what, what sort of tanks were those? And we're, So what are you talking about? Well, as we went across, I looked down, there was two bloody green army tanks sitting on the deck. We'd all been intrigued, you know, so we'd had two pilots, an engineer, myself on the flight deck, uh, had um, an air electronics operator sitting in the radio position, had another air electronics guy on the Earth's uh, turret, as it was then, and then we had an aft observer, so, you know, several sets of eyes had all watched this boat had gone past. Yeah. And it just happened this young maintenance guy had been sort of looking out of one of the observer windows over the shoulder of one of the full-time air crew and had seen these tanks. And we'd all been looking for specific bits of the um, vessel that we were required to look at. Right. And the untrained eyes had picked out these tanks. Right. So we quickly replayed the URDS footage that we had. And um, sure enough, the green monochrome uh, display we saw were these... Um, to what appeared to be tanks, okay. so we doubled back, um, did a um, second run of this boat, and yet, sure enough, there had been two T seventy two Russian battle tanks sitting on there. And we, so we sent out a flash message, geez, uh, back to New Zealand. It turned out the um, boat had come from the Middle East, had actually um, spent two or three days in Auckland. Oh, right. with these tanks on board no one had noticed them <laughs> then sailed again um, they'd yeah. been purchased by a um, as it turned out we found out months later by a um, Hollywood movie company had brought these battle tanks right. and was getting them shipped out oh right but, okay. yeah, that was one of the more memorable sort of passes we did on a boat
0: yeah, yeah. oh that's amazing well I shouldn't hold you up too much longer because there's a uh there's a lot of uh, socialising to do yeah. here, so um, thank you very much, Mike. It's been great, it's been great to hear from your trade and, and from you personally. Cheers. Thank you. Well, I've got the real pleasure now to talk with the squadron commander of Number 5 Squadron, Wing Commander DJ
8: Hunt. Hey, good day. How are you? Great. What a great evening tonight. Oh, it's fantastic. Um, uh, the way to start uh, a weekend like this is absolutely ideal because you find that uh, at most anniversaries and reunions like this, you get so many people who haven't seen each other for a long time yeah. and really what they want to do is stand around and catch up. Yeah,
0: there's been a lot of enthusiasm that night. I've been uh, watching the faces and there's a lot of yeah, a lot of catching up
8: it's oh absolutely yeah you see the right across the spectrum from uh, the young guys through to the old people there is right across they will see people they haven't seen for 5 10 15 20 30 40 years yeah. and uh, yeah it certainly is enjoyable
0: yeah so you you command the squadron now it's a it's a famous squadron it's um, it contributes a hell of a lot to the country um, what's it like being the squadron commander yeah
8: um, Really good fun, to be honest. Yep. So, um, uh, I guess because when you get to be the, the squadron commander, you have come through the squadron. This is my fourth tour here, and I spent probably uh 13 to 14 years of my career at Fire Squadron. So, okay. when you come back as the CO, you know it's going to be the last time you come back to Fire Squadron, right. so uh, you do enjoy it. And uh, it's great because you pick up uh, as you're moving through. Um, Your career and seeing different COs, you pick up a lot on um, different way people handle and different way people conduct themselves. And you sort of take a little piece of each and um, try to put it together and think, heck, hopefully I can do the job justice.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of unusual uh, to have a navigator as a squadron commander, but on a squadron like this, it's all about navigation. So it makes sense, doesn't it?
8: Yeah, so it's yeah, it's slightly different. I, I guess that is um, something that uh, five squadron and, and the P three, but also on, on the Sunderland's and, and flying boats before that, is that because it's a mission aircraft and you're not transporting cargo or people from point A to point B, um, that interaction between uh, the flight deck, the pilots, the flyers, and the mission crew is actually what needs to to gel so you can actually achieve the mission. So. We're pretty well used to people who've come from a fire squadron background. That um, it's not just uh, pilots who can be in charge, but it's the, the navigators, or air warfare officers now, um, that we can we can actually command. And there's been a number of them. So although I took over from a pilot, the um, the one before him was a navigator, right. and the one before that was actually a, um, air electronics officer. Oh right. So okay. yeah, it cool. was quite a quite a diverse background. Yeah right, and. Um, do you get a lot of time
0: flying still now?
8: No, not a huge amount. So um, I still maintain uh, a flying cat yeah. and an occasional we'll flyer, but uh, no, nowhere near as much as I used to. Right, right.
0: <laughs> Would you like to be doing more?
8: Uh yes and no. It's uh, it is uh, it's a young person's game. Yep. I think it, it is. It, it's great fun, but uh, as you get older, you sort of want to take it a bit more slower. So. Right.
0: So over the time that you've um, been with the squadron, and you said it was how long, 14 years?
8: Yeah, well, I um, first joined the squadron in 1998.
0: Yep, okay. You will have seen a few changes, in, and in particular the upgrade of the aircraft.
8: Yeah, that's right. So um, when I first arrived on squadron in the, the late 90s, we were just getting the uh, the airframes back from Australia under Project Kestrel, so they come back with the, the new, new wings, and the next logical step was um, an upgrade to the the whole um, inside of the aircraft itself from um, the flight deck right the way back to the sensors and uh, the data management system, the computer system that that runs the sensors so um, having flown on the old aircraft and seen the transition through to the the new aircraft yeah quite a bit different we've seen a real change particularly in the navigator's role where it's gone from traditional navigation to uh, actually now we call them information managers, so they're actually more in the communications and mission, um, uh, mission command and mission direction. So slightly different. But. Okay, so that would,
0: uh, I guess, going right back uh, to where you're recruiting people, you're looking for almost a different type of person for what you would have been recruiting for originally. Um, you're looking for the, the people who are growing up more with electronics and and mm digital stuff
5: wouldn't
8: you? Yes slightly more I think um, I think in terms of it's a similar type of person that that we want to recruit we know um, what individuals traits characteristics that that fit with the Air Force mode and I think the the computer side of it is just a natural side of it the technology is that nowadays that when people um, come out of school they normally have a very good technical background so I think it's probably harder for those who haven't Come from the background, yeah. the, the the changing roles. Role, so.
0: Yeah, I'll bet. Have, have you got any sort of really memorable flights that you've done that uh, you know m- might have uh, stuck in your memory? Any rescues or anything like anything like that?
8: Uh, not not specifically memorable flights, but I do remember, um, and this was very early on in my career, where I still um, just came off conversion course, very very green, and um, we deployed to Dunedin. And from there we were operating um, and flying down to the Southern Oceans, conducting patrols, looking for illegal fishers, and then recovering back to Dunedin. This was before we started landing in Antarctica, which that was one of my first trips um, uh, with the squadron, and I really enjoyed it. And I was like, wow, that's something different. And then uh, back up here to Whenua Pai, and then uh, the boss walks in and says, oh, we just got a late notice uh, exercise um, in the UK. You guys are heading there in a, in a week's time. So pretty much a week later, we're in the UK and uh, you're flying in and around uh, the North Sea tracking submarines and that side. I think, goodness, two, three weeks ago, down in the deep, dark Antarctic uh, ocean, searching for illegal fishes. And a couple of weeks later, here I am in the North Sea, north of Britain, tracking submarines. So. Wow. Yeah, that's a real amazing. nice, diverse, I think that was, yeah. Yeah, that was yeah. a really enjoyable, yeah. memorable time.
0: And, and I suppose uh, you've spent a bit of time in the tropics and, and Australia and other places as well with the squadron?
8: Yeah, I think uh, the South Pacific, which, you know, that's where the squadron w- was born. Um, you spend, uh a good amount of time flying to some really different places, places that I don't think you would ever consider going to, nor um, some of them you didn't even know. I never even knew they existed until until yeah. we went there. Yeah. You know, places like um, uh, Chuuk Atoll, Maduro, um, Yap, Palau, Ponape, um, Tarawa—really um, different places that you yeah. get to, to travel to. Just naturally as um, part of the fly. Um, and yeah, those have been yeah some of the really memorable times um, with the remote places. You fly in there, and you realise that they very, really, <laughs> very, really have uh, aircraft flying in and out there, and it's uh, pretty unique. So, yeah, 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 those are enjoyable.
0: And what about the um, the sort of esprit de corps on the, on the squadron? It must be a, um, a quite a social squadron. Uh, Everyone sort of pulls in together on everything.
8: Yeah, I think that's that's part of the the way the squadron is operated because um, there's that mission focus, and you take a, a team of fourteen or fifteen individuals. Um, you put them in a small tube. You send them out flying for for eight to ten hours, and if they're going to be successful, they've got to work together. and And by by and large, it is successful. So, the model that that we use seems to work in um, develops teams, and naturally, from there, when um, you know when you're travelling overseas and you land in a, a foreign land, and um, the crew will naturally just hang out together yeah. you know spend time socialise together so that, that, that crew concept does build um, a unique esprit of corps where you're flying and living with the similar people for you know weeks and months it, it, it really does develop a good relationship
0: and one of the things that the squadron does now that they never did when I was in the Air Force is they're actually um Uh, dropping bombs as well as you've got torpedoes, but you're bombers now as well. Yeah. That's something a bit different.
8: Yeah, it is. It's um, it's, uh, sort of reinvigorated, but uh, it's been a role that most P3s overseas will have, so it's just that it's a depth bomb. So it is shallow water use against um, submerged contacts. So um, it also gives us uh, the opportunity to practice and develop the skills to be able to, handle and deliver ordnance such as, you know, the 500-pound bombs from storing them where we're storing them to taking them from there, transporting them to the airfield, prepping them for flight, loading them onto the aircraft, dropping them, and then obviously returning um, after that. So in terms of exercising that whole process, um, bombs are ideal because you can go and drop them on weapons ranges, and they're fairly... um, it's fairly easy to uh, put together a program to actually be able to use live ordnance.
5: Right, right.
0: H- have you um, spent any time deployed overseas? Did, like, uh, I know that some of the Orion uh, crews have been up into the Middle East and stuff like that. Have you done any of that sort of stuff yourself?
8: Uh, yep, so I've done a little bit, not, um, not with the, the P-3 itself. So last deployment um, when they were uh, operating up there, I was actually deployed to... Uh, in the the u.s naval headquarters in bahrain for six months so pretty much as a liaison officer to um you know liaise with uh, the u.s navy and the other forces that operate in the area you know the combined maritime forces which is 30 odd countries that operate in there in combat um, piracy so you you sit in those headquarters and um do liaison talk to them about what you can provide, um, provide a link between the aircraft and the detachment and, and the headquarters. So yeah, which was good. That was that was great fun. I mean we had a couple of really good wins um with two major major assists with um intercepting narcotics vessels which had hundreds of million dollars of heroin and cannabis on board. So
0: wow.
8: yeah, those are really satisfying.
0: Yeah. I mean, it must also be really satisfying when you are sent out on a search for a missing yacht or a missing trawler or something, and and the squadron finds it. Uh, and that happens quite often. We we see it comes up come up in the press, uh, you know, yacht missing, Orion sent, and then, you know, maybe it might even be two days later, you guys will find it, or even guys in uh, dinghies. You know, how how good does that feel when the squadron actually has a result uh, like that?
8: Yeah, that's it. That's uh, yeah, extremely rewarding. So it's a search and rescue piece, I guess, is. Um, the one that is the most real um, for the squadron. So we always have a, a crew and aircraft on standby you know they all live or they have to be within at base within 30 minutes of um, getting the, the text to say hey we need need to launch so um, it's really our, our number one priority so when you do launch and you have successful search and rescue yeah it, it's good, really satisfying, it makes it worthwhile for the um, the weeks and months each year you spend With a cell phone, being within thirty minutes of base, ready just in case. Yeah, you know, yeah. Wow,
0: and the other thing too, it's actually really good uh, PR for the Air Force because you guys are in the press doing really good stuff. And uh, I guess three squadron is much the same, but um, uh, you don't really hear much from the other squadrons. You just sort of hear about you guys doing rescues and three squadron doing rescues, and that's really good stuff, isn't it?
8: Absolutely, yeah. So from uh, you know that um, professional. And uh, public reputation, piece, search and rescue is, and like I said, it is the, the number one thing that we're pretty much renowned for, yeah. um, particularly within uh, the yachting circles. I think because we are the long-range search and rescue head up to the South Pacific, that often it is for yachts, um, so the yachting community know who we are, they're aware of what we do, and um, whenever we uh, uh, talk to them, I mentioned they always know what their Ryan does, so right
0: was well, it's definitely appreciated by everyone across New Zealand, I'm sure, but uh, you guys do fantastic work, and um, it's just you know really good to be able to come along and celebrate with you on the 75th of the squadron and 50th of the uh, Orion, which is an, an incredible aircraft. Absolute
8: pleasure. No problem. Thank you very much. Awesome. Cheers.
0: Well, that excellent chat with the CO was the end of the first night, but I was back there again on Saturday morning for the open day, where rather than in the hangar, the reunion was centred around the Walker Lounge and from there everybody would radiate out to different sections on various tours.
9: ...of the, uh, the civil and the Flight Deck trainer um, uh, and we've got briefs down at Fire Squadron as well uh, just covering off some of the, the current ops and uh, where Fire Squadron's going in the future. So there's a little bit going on, this will be the, the focal point for today for the Walker Lounge Um, So at any time if you're thirsty, the bar will be open, there's food available outside so just feel free to come back and mix and mingle. Um, Putting your name down for the tours of anything, outside behind you on the deck you'll find uh, a whiteboard and there's a whole heap of lovely people out there to assist. Um, If you want to go and visit something, feel free to go outside uh, and talk to them and and get yourself on one of the tours. We've got vans running between here and squadron uh, to save your legs. Uh, the rest of the time you'll be uh, escorted by uh, people you so you know where you're going. Just a wee point on that, so photos for today, um, due to some of the security policy uh, there won't be any photos taken inside the aircraft, however pretty much outside of that, uh, free for all. So there'll tables over in the aircraft hangar to leave your phones. Um, outside on the table before you go in the aircraft, because I know some people get very itchy fingers. Um, that'll just make it a little bit easier. Uh, there's also outside one of the marquees down there, you'll see the property tent. So if you saw something last night that you liked, or you haven't actually been here yet, there's a lot of things for sale as well, uh, including extra <coughs> bottles of port, etc., um, which I get in pretty quick Uh, because it's going very fast. Uh, The last point I've got to make is the bar and food. The bar will be open until 1400, and the food is all outside there ready to go as well. So feel free throughout the day just to to pick up a plate and eat whenever you feel like it. I just ask that if you are finished and there's no one behind you, just to cover up the food again, um, just so it doesn't get dirty, etc. Any questions today, ask anyone in uniform. We're more than willing to help. Uh, and if I can't answer it, you see me walking around with a big stick. Just come and tap me on the shoulder uh, and I'll pretend I know what I'm doing. Cool. Uh, have a good afternoon and enjoy yourselves. Cheers.
0: Well, I'm speaking with Kate Galbraith, who's an Air Warfare Officer. Hi, Kate.
10: Hi, Dave. How are you? Great, great.
0: Um, Can you tell me a little bit about what your trade involves?
10: Okay, so as an air warfare officer on the Orion, my job is to manage the fuel on the aircraft, um, conduct all the military communications on and off the aircraft, and that's both voice communications and data communications, so it involves sort of like an email chat system um, as well as images that we can send off as well. And also to keep the aircraft safe and navigate it around the sky. So that's basically the three most important parts of my job as an IM, which is the first stage of um, the Air Warfare Officer's sort of career path on the Orion. Um, After about two years, I'll look to upgrade to the TACO position, so become the tactical coordinator and run more of the mission from a higher level sort of position.
0: Okay and how long have you been on the squadron?
10: I have been on the squadron fully qualified for only three months. So I joined the Air Force three and a half years ago and um, up until that point I've been doing my basic training, then my initial navigator course and then the um, P3 conversion course most recently.
0: Excellent, so P3 and 5 squadron is your first first actual squadron assignment?
10: That's correct, yeah. So it is my first first operational squadron I've been part of and I um, expect to be part of it for the foreseeable future. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well I guess in your job that's all you can really do isn't it, I guess.
10: Yeah so I expect to sort of see out the information manager role for the next couple of years and then um, as I said before go on to a taco upgrade um, and then once I've done five or six years on squadron, I can probably expect to be posted to um, a role either down in Wellington in sort of a joint joint forces environment or something to do with the planning of um, missions and exercises up here at the headquarters in Auckland.
0: Right, OK. And um, So uh, tell me a little bit about life on the squadron. What, what's the squadron like?
10: The squadron, squadron life is pretty cool. Um, I guess... It's probably been said before, but it's like a big family of, of um, like-minded people, really. And um, yeah, when you get sent away for weeks at a time with um, your same your same crew, um, you can get to know them, know them pretty well. So yeah, it's it's a good environment, and everyone's always supportive of each of each other. Um, the sort of rank hierarchy is broken down a little bit, and um, within our crews, which makes it good for. Um, working as a team on board the aircraft, so we can sort of focus on the mission rather than have those barriers of rank in the way, yeah.
0: And uh, I mean, uh, I should probably bring up, you, you're a female, there's a lot of females on the aircrew these days, aren't there, and is it a, a, a really e- is it easy these days to get into the uh, aircrew roles as a female?
10: Yeah, sure, I think um, there definitely has been, there's definitely more um, females on the aircrew roles than there has been in the past, to be honest, I don't really see uh, see it as being that unusual. Um, yeah, day to day, I don't really think about being female, being different, sort of just another one of the crew members. And that's yeah.
0: exactly how it should be, isn't it? it? Which
10: is exactly how it should be. Yeah, you're right, and Fantastic. I think I think it's really good. Yeah, yeah. integrated.
0: Yeah, and that's great. Mm. Is there anything else you can think of that you would want to put out there for anyone who might be thinking about the uh, the Air Force?
10: Yeah, I think it's a great opportunity to sort of get out and find yourself and do a job that's actually got some real, like, noticeable purpose um, and, yeah, contribute to, contribute to um, the interests of New Zealand through, through what we do um, at Five Squadron. I think it's great, a great place for the, um, younger the younger squadron members to come through as well. There's plenty of opportunities and um, areas for career development um, on the squadron. Exactly.
0: Well, are you flying operational yet?
10: Yes, yes. Okay, so
0: have you had any sort of memorable ops, any rescues, anything like that yet?
10: I have held the duty phone for a number of weeks now, but I have yet to have a call out. Um, I have been diverted in flight to uh, um, search and rescue um, over in Tonga, which is pretty cool. Um, but basically, I'm looking forward to my first. Um, international exercise over in Malaysia next month so um yeah that'll be the the first big test for me I guess um having finished my training not too long ago yeah
0: did did you train with Jack
10: Barnett yeah um we both trained in Australia in East Sale but Jack uh was he was about a year behind me on course so yeah. yeah So,
0: um, can you tell me about the training actually? Because I I didn't get that out of Jack, I forgot about that. Yeah,
10: no worries. So, um, when I joined up, we did the six months um, initial officer training course down in Woodburn. Um, After that, you do things like your aviation medicine course, survival course, parachute course, that sort of thing. Um, From there, the Air Warfare Officers get posted to East Sail um, Military Base in Australia. We do a year there operating um, with the Australian Air Combat Officers. They've got a dedicated squadron um, which flies solely for the purpose of training navigators over there um, on the King Air aircraft. So we spend a year doing that and then um, at the completion of that training you get your um, Air Warfare Officer wings. And then get sent back to either five squadron or forty squadron. So it's decided um, at that point whether you go to five squadron or forty squadron. And from there, um, you have to do the conversion course. So in five squadron case, the P3 conversion course um, that took about ten months to get through that and. Um, you do that as a whole crew, so not just navigators, it's everyone on the crew who's coming through um, does that course together and you fly together as a brand new crew. And then upon graduation of that, you get split into separate crews that already exist on Ops Squadron and away you go. Yeah.
0: Well thank you very much Kate, it's No has been worries. A pleasure to talk. Cheers.
11: Yeah, I'm, I'm sort of a retreat, so I've, um, I've been in, I was a flight sergeant for about uh, 10 years. Got okay. out, came back in as um, a sergeant, so. Okay, yep. yeah. I've been, this is my second sort of tour in the Air Force type thing.
0: Okay, yeah. Uh, I'm talking about Sergeant Trent Wyatt, who's a flight engineer. Hi. How are you going? Good, good. Um, can you tell me a little bit about your role?
11: Uh, yeah, well, I'm flight engineer on the P3s, so we're basically the systems. Um, subject matter experts on the aircraft, so normally recruited from um, either avionics and aircraft trades in the hangar. And uh, we're trained up on all the systems, how to operate the systems on the aircraft. We're in charge of uh, starting the engines and controlling them in flight Um, and assist the pilot with um, things like airspeed control. Um, We also monitor all the um, other associated systems like uh, fuel, hydraulics, air conditioning, pressurisation, make sure they're they're, uh, operating properly throughout the flight. Um, and we also do maintenance on the aircraft, so if we're away deployed overseas without maintenance support, we can actually uh, fix the aircraft ourselves, um, get serviceable and back up and running.
0: Okay. So did you come from the aircraft trade
11: or the avionics? I was a blackhander aircraft technician there, so right. specialised in engines and hydraulics. Okay.
0: And how long have you been with the squadron?
11: Um, I've actually been on squadron about 21 years. Wow. Um, so I've done about 26 years in the Air Force, 21 on squadron, as both a maintainer and a flight engineer and been a flight engineer for about 17 years.
6: OK.
0: Uh, I guess the Orion's probably the only aircraft left that you have a flight engineer on board
11: now, is it? Yeah, one of the two. The other one's C-130. Oh, they're still working? Um, yeah, so oh, it's right. C-130. it's an, uh, The H model still has a flight engineer. The newer J's uh, have got rid of their flight engineer and replaced it with a bunch of computers, yep. which is un- unfortunate. but yeah. Sadly, uh, the way technology goes, yeah.
5: OK. okay.
0: Um, so you must have seen a few, a fair few things over your 21 years with the squadron. Uh, are there any sort of um, particular flights that stand out, um, maybe any rescues or anything
11: like that? Uh, well, yeah, yeah, I've been involved with quite a few. And I, I still remember my first uh, rescue, which was, I was actually an OCC student, so I wasn't even qualified and got asked whether I wanted to be an observer. And that was one that had carried on for four days, looking for three people in a um, life raft. Right. I think they'd been missing for about six days. And we were the last um, last asset to be put on the search. So we were out there with a French guardian and um, searched what was actually a massive area. And as we left the area and were turning around, um, I was sitting in starboard aft, sorry, port aft, and um, just happened to see the orange flick go past the wing. And we caught these people outside the, the search area on the very last day of searching. So they were extremely lucky. Um, they were very pleased to see us. So it was probably one of our you know, more memorable uh, successful
0: stars. Uh, there's so many times it comes up in the press that uh, five squadrons sent out in Orion to look for a yacht or to look for a machine, missing fisherman or something, and so often you'll find it. Um, is there any, has anyone ever counted up how many people over the seventy-five years of the squadron have actually been rescued by the squadron?
11: Not, not that I'm aware of, a eh? but it would be it would be a lot. Even um, like one of the biggest sars we ever did was the Queen's Birthday sar, and would it be about ninety-three, I think, ninety-three or four. And uh, there they had, I think, it's fifteen boats in distresses. The Auckland Tonga race, and they got caught in the middle of a rather large uh, hurricane. Right. And there they, they managed to assist, I think it's about 13 different vessels, each with um, the crews on board. Um, but out of all the vessels, there's one not found. I remember it was the quartermaster, and that was um, never found. So they reckon she went down with uh, all hands on deck. But that involved uh, pretty much all the squadron, and it was 24 uh, 7 operations for about three days. So every time one aircraft was uh, coming off station, another one would be headed out, go back on station, carry on looking.
0: It's, uh, of course, the other big search that the squadron's been involved in is MH370 as yep, well. Yep. Uh, have you been involved in that personally?
11: Yeah, I spent five weeks up there and flew about 150-odd hours okay. um, up there for, looking for it. Uh, pretty long days, yeah. pretty arduous searches. Um, I believe we did very well because we were getting down lower, finding a lot of debris, but noth- nothing was actually off MH370. Yeah. But uh, Yeah, it's certainly a, a large effort by the old squadron.
0: It must be a big disappointment that you put in so much effort and were getting results of finding things out there in the middle of the ocean but but nothing that actually pinpoints the aircraft.
11: No, and that's the problem. They they were working on um, the best estimates of where they think the aircraft would have crashed but the problem was that the longer it took, because of the strong currents there, their search area just got bigger and bigger. So I think at the time they had a philosophy of they keep researching the same area because um, the currents would actually bring fresh water through the same area.
5: Right.
11: So that would mean you'd be searching a different lot of surface water coming through. So if there was debris, hopefully it would track through the search area. Right. But yeah, that was a big effort. I think there's 19 aircraft up there from about uh, five or six different nations. Okay.
0: From, from an engineer's point of view, um, the aircraft are very reliable, aren't they?
11: Yeah, they are. Um, they've been a very reliable aircraft. They're starting to suffer a few more problems now, and that's due to age and actually harder to source decent spares. Um, but they, when you fly them hard, actually give them a lot of flying, they're actually a very reliable aircraft. Um, they like any aeroplane; they don't like sitting around in, in the, especially in the uh, damp conditions of Norway here. <laughs> yeah. They tend to throw up a few more faults in.
0: And they're not really flying them as, as many hours per year
11: as it used to be, is it? No, uh, our, our budget for flying hours has been cut, down, cut back every successive year. Um, that's to just restraints on the NZDF, the budgets, and, um, yeah, trying to make ends meet, really, uh, which is unfortunate. But when we have operated up in places like the Persian Gulf, where we fly the aircraft every second day and fly them hard, they've been very reliable, yeah, plus a drier environment, so that's also helped.
0: You guys contribute so much to the um, to the country, to the nation, and uh, you know, we appreciate what Five Squad does and has always done. it's yeah. Fantastic stuff. So thank you very much. Ah, uh, thank you. Cheers. Cheers. At this point my escort Jack Barnett and I wandered over to the hangar and had a look inside one of the P3 Orions. I do apologise for the background noise inside the Orion, that's the auxiliary power unit running, so that all their computer systems were up and running and on display. Jack starts off the tour. So, have you
3: been in uh, P3? A uh, long, long time ago, yeah, yeah, yeah. pretty different. Um, this is the best part of the aircraft. This is uh, this is the galley, I guess. Um, no other way to describe it. Um, so we're in the back of the plane now. We're yeah. So the yeah this is, the, this is the, the furthermost part at the back of the plane. Um, this is pretty much the the heart of the crew during long transits and stuff. cooking up some pretty good feeds and stuff like that. Um, a lot of time spent down here, especially as, uh, as junior members of the crew, cooking feeds for the senior members. Yeah, not too much more to say about down here.
0: Well, I certainly recognise these because I used to work on these. They, uh,
3: oh, at SNS? Yep. Yeah, at uh, the six yep. life preservers. Yep. Yeah, those are worn during all low level operations. Safety first, I guess. Yep. Cool. And then
0: moving forward a little bit.
3: So as you move forward, this is where the, uh, the Ord sits. Um, He's in charge of all the uh, sort of stuff coming out the bottom of the aircraft, uh, sonar boys and, and whatnot.
0: So, what, what was his role? What was his name?
3: Uh, Ord. Ord. Yeah.
0: Oh, Air, Air ordnance. ordnance.
3: Yep. yep. Of course. Yep. yep. Um, I think it's on the seat on the other side. Uh, it's just an observer seat, okay, for, uh, for certain rescues. Yep. Yep. yep.
0: As we moved up the fuselage we bumped again into Kate Calbraith. So um, we're here now with Kate again, who we talked to earlier, and uh, you're actually in your station within the aircraft.
10: That's great, yeah, I'm at the IM station on the tech rail. Um, from here we manage all the communications, so obviously we've got um, all our radios able to be controlled um, through the system from this uh, station. Support. Um, We've also got our moving map that we can use for situational awareness and back it up with our paper charts for navigation. We also do our fuel management here, so we've got a bit of a desk to the right of the station for um, plotting out fuel graphs and that sort of thing. To my left, I've got the TACO station, and they're sort of the mission commander um, position on the TAC rail, overseeing the smooth running of the task, they've also got this um, all these buttons and switches on top of their station and that's all the um, weapons and search store sort of um, functions for releasing weapons and life rafts, um, setting sonar boy, um parameters as well. To the left of them is the Sensor Employment Manager or the SEM. They collate all the information from the other air warfare specialists along the TAC rail um, and work with classifying tracks. and and more of the security information and that sort of thing. To the left of them we have the acoustics operator who listens to the information we get from the sonar boys and deals with all the underwater signals. Um, Over on the other end of the tech rail we have the EO operator, Um, so he's using the camera to get visual contact on anything we might see out there and to the right of him is a radar operator who can detect contacts um, out in our area as well as use the radar for um, weather avoidance and that sort of thing.
0: You've painted a really good word picture here but we're not allowed to actually take any pictures so unfortunately the listeners have to imagine all the stuff that you've been talking about but you've actually done very well. Um, Basically everything's down one side of the aircraft and uh, Okay. Yeah, it's like a, a series of desks with computer screens and
10: exactly, yeah, and we're all facing all facing to the left, the um, port side of the aircraft, and there's um, very few windows in this whole aircraft. So basically, we're relying on our sensors to give ourselves situational awareness of what we're looking at.
0: Right. Yeah. And now I'll probably move a bit further forward.
10: We'll move forward, okay.
3: Business in. If you're a pilot, anyway,
0: it's a little bit more modern than the last time I looked in one of these.
3: Yeah, it's definitely a lot more modern. Uh, it's still not a full glass cockpit. There's a uh, you know a lot of analog stuff in here, but uh... here we go. Little pilot here. He's got to tell you a bit more.
12: information. Right. To
0: the next, I right. right. Good. And up in the cockpit, we met one of the co-pilots, Ben James.
12: So I'm Ben James. I'm a co-pilot on the Orion here. Been flying for about a year on Squadron. Yep. Um, yeah, and this is, this is the cockpit. So we've got uh, two seats up the front for the pilots and a flight engineer sits in the middle. Um, so f- I guess flight engineers are kind of a trade from the past, but we're still an important crew member And um, the reason for that. A lot of the systems are quite mandrolic on their own, so a lot of mechanical systems, whereas in more modern aircraft a lot of that's more automated. Yep. So the flight engineer's in charge of sort of setting powers and driving a lot more of the mechanical systems. And um, yeah, the pilots are left to, to sort of fly the mission okay. and position the aircraft. Um, so left is usually pilot flying. Yep. And right hand seat is pilot monitoring. Uh, we've got sort of tactical displays up the front. A lot of that's fed um, by information from the back end. So you can send information or map displays from the back to the front. Okay. And that, uh, sort of varies depending on what mission or profile we're flying, so it can be um, tracking towards a radar contact or it could be a submarine contact, Um, and yeah, that's when the the TACO, the tactical coordinator down the back plays quite a a, um, a big role in positioning the aircraft speed height-wise, and then the intensity of the aircraft, whether it could be like an at- attacking or um, just updating the position of whatever contact we're flying towards. Yep, um,
0: you know, what's it like to fly? Is it an easy aircraft to fly? Or is it, is it yeah, it
12: one? is a it's really yeah, beautiful to fly, it handles really well, there's um, heaps of power which is really apparent, You've, yep. you know, four big engines, um, so we're really lucky in that regard, you can um, yeah, you really sort of feel the power and a lot of the time we're sort of um, flying around at quite a low house, you know we don't, don't actually require that much power, yep. so um, if you're flying like a tactical profile you can yeah it's really really responsive yep. and you can, you can actually throw, throw it around so for, for a big aircraft it's actually quite manoeuvrable and we can you know bank up to sort of 60 degrees right. angle back turns um, down at 200 feet over water yep. at night yeah <laughs> Yeah. Have you personally done any display flying for uh, air shows that sort of thing? No, I haven't. That's one thing um, I haven't had a chance to do. So I think that's probably one of the yeah, more enjoyable parts of flying as well. Yeah. But it's reserved for the more experienced guys on the squadron, yeah. Yeah. as you can imagine, yeah. That's um, one of the things we don't do too often anymore as well. Yeah, like that's a shame isn't it? We used to always
0: the Orion's
12: come through,
0: yeah. burning up the sky.
12: Yeah, I mean we've done, we do a few buzz, buzz and brakes around the place as well which is one of the warrior kind of bits of flying. You get to open the bomb bay which gives that, that sort of whistle yep. as you fly over which yeah, I'm sure people will be familiar with. Yeah, so at low level we you know we're one of the fastest aircraft around which is for propeller aircraft is a bit of a feat as well so down at low level we get top speeds 405 knots. Yeah.
0: Are you allowed to talk about the um, experience of when you're doing a bombing run
12: or, or anything like that? Is that okay to talk about? Or? Uh, yeah. So I haven't actually done bombing. It. Oh, okay. <laughs> 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 yeah. But you can see, so we've got a, um, a weapons panel which is in the in the centre up there. Yep. So you can, uh, I guess, when you have weapons stores on board. In the Bombay, all the, the selections are made up there, and you can actually select different types of stores. So if you had a mixed load of um, different types of ordnance, yep. you can select which station you want to drop from, um, and what type of store as well. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. So often yeah, we actually we carry practice bombs as well sometimes. So it's um, basically just a hunk of metal. With a phosphorus charge in it, when it when it hits the water or the ground, it'll send up a yeah. So it's basically simulating just the the button pushes that we have to make. Right. Yeah. So um, how long how long do you expect to be on the squad and doing a
0: tour before you might move on to the next
12: role, or will you be here forever? Uh, that's yeah. who, Who knows? I guess that's a bit of crystal ball gazing. I mean, I been a co-pilot yeah for about a year and I can probably expect another maybe two years as a co-pilot before looking at doing a captaincy upgrade. Yep. And then generally people are two or three years as a captain before maybe hitting away and doing the instructor's course down in the hard Yeah, so I guess yeah, another sort of five or six years on squadron. Okay. Sort of averaging about probably four hundred hours a year at the moment, five hundred hours a year. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Sort of various comes and goes. Yeah, I mean a lot of people are learning to fly these days, and particularly through
0: flying schools, so they can go straight to the airliners. But this is this is real flying, isn't it? This is, this is a whole different ball game in terms
12: of flying. Yeah, this this is real flying. It's um, it's not as automated as, as the airlines, and you know the the variety that we do here is for me so vast as well. It's, you know, it's not just flying A to B. We we take off for the purpose of Going to do something, yeah, and um, and then you know get, getting somewhere else after that's a consideration after we've achieved the mission or achieved the flight profile. So yeah, we, we do a, do a whole lot more. And every you know, every flight's different. Every flight can be a challenge. There's so many more planning considerations um, that go into the type of you know types of flying we do. I was lucky enough to I've done a bit of civilian flying for a small airline, so oh, right. I've done the sort of A to B transit stuff. Yep. Um, and I, you know, far more, although I enjoyed that, I far more enjoy this, you know, sense of achievement, um, sense of accomplishment once you go out there and you're, you know, you're flying a mission for the the interests of New Zealand. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Are there any, uh,
0: any particular uh, patrols or or searches or anything that stand out that you've done that, um, you know, highlights?
12: Yeah, um, we do, A lot of patrols with the smaller Pacific Island nations, um, and really help them out a lot. So they're not as fortunate. I used to don't have the resources to to protect their interests and their fishery interests. So um, when we fly out there and patrol their um, their resources, it's it's a huge help help for them. I think it's just amazing how appreciative they are. yeah, of the work we do is really, you know, really important. I think being in the islands and seeing, seeing how pressure it is, you know, really cool.
5: And
12: what would you say out there to anyone who's thinking about um, joining the air force to become a pilot these days? Oh yeah, I'd, I'd really encourage it. Um, it's probably the best thing I've ever done. Every every day, I love every day. Um, yeah. So if you, if you follow your dreams and work hard, it's really rewarding. Yep, cool. Thank
0: you very much Ben. Cool, thank you. Cheers. After exiting the P3 Orion, Jack took me to see the flight simulator and he gave us a bit of a lowdown.
3: It's pretty much just like a, a sit up like in the back of the plane, um, but for mainly practising procedural things. Everything works pretty much as it should in the plane. A few minor differences, but it's good for conversion courses to get in here because this is where a lot of the practice takes place before we actually have to get up in the air. Obviously it's a lot cheaper to practice uh, in a simulator than it is to fly the plane around the air when everyone's learning the things.
0: So can you just explain the name of this place and what and Yeah, what cool. So we're
3: in the CITL at the moment, which is a systems integration test lab. So it's pretty much where everyone comes to test procedures, uh, trial new things and conversion courses do a lot of their training here.
0: And so all of these uh, consoles that we see in front of us are pretty much the same as what's in the Exactly. Uh, uh, most
3: of these consoles mirror exactly what are in the aircraft, um, and you get the benefit of being able to set up different consoles with different things, so it's not uh, set in each location. You can change things, which is the, the nature of the uh, the DMS we use. And you'll have um, trainers somewhere sitting there giving you... Uh... Yeah, absolutely. With um, with this system here, um, on the left-hand side is where all the practice crew members sit. On the right-hand side, people run the SIDL, so they throw radar contacts and fly the sim around and pretty much run it as if we were moving around in a plane.
0: Okay, cool.
3: So how long would you spend uh, training in here before you actually got on the aircraft? I can't talk to that exactly uh, as I haven't done much training in here myself. Um, But yeah, you spend a lot of time in here. Pretty much you should know everything um, required uh, of you as a D-cap before you step onto the aircraft through here.
0: Uh, and w- once you're actually flying will you still come back in here yeah absolutely
3: do, yeah, yeah. Keep uh, current a lot stuff yeah exactly like yeah. yeah yeah you never stop learning really uh people think once you finish your initial training you've, you're not a trainer anymore but yeah, you're always upgrading always learning new things and then when you're not you're teaching someone else right of course yeah so crews spend a lot of time in here
0: and at this stage, when you are flying as a crew, would the whole
3: crew come in and do this together so that they yeah um, it can, it can be used? Bond, uh, pe- yeah. People can come in by themselves just for a play around oh, right, uh, okay. if they know how to use the system. Yep. Uh, but crews definitely come in here um, as a crew because once you are established in a crew, you sort of get to know the nuances of that crew and you start to work together. So it, it is good to continue training as a crew. Yep. The whole crew system is quite new. Uh, they didn't used to have specific crews, so now they do. So it means the, like the bonds between the, the crew members have definitely increased.
0: That's actually something I had picked up on a, a few things um, said last night. Yep. Is uh, they got the crews back again, and yep. and, and you know the head that um, yep. with the Sunderlands and I think for most of the Orion period, there have not been. It, you'd just be mixed and matched, wouldn't you, uh, for a long time?
3: Yeah. The uh, the word on the street is everyone's pretty happy with the with the crews being brought back in. Yep. Uh, it definitely seems to. Make things work a lot more efficiently because everyone knows the crew a lot better. Yeah,
0: yeah, it does. That, that bond that you get in a crew will last for a lifetime as well, and I know that from talking with bomber command guys and you know all, uh, all sorts of guys that flew in crews, and they they stay friends for the rest of their lives yeah
3: exactly I mean it just it speaks for itself speaking to some of the people I hear last night you know that's those friendships never really die so uh, yeah it's pretty awesome to be part of a crew and when you finally do finish conversion and get put in a crew it's a pretty pretty awesome experience cool sweet
0: So I'm talking with Alan Bleakley who was on uh, both the Catalina and the Sunderland. Hi Alan. How do you do? Now you
13: were a flight engineer. Yes I was. Uh, trained in 1951 and was posted from a training course to Catalinas in Lothala Bay. Okay. At the end, at the end of 51. yeah.
0: Right, and uh, so you're one of the early guys here because there's um, really no one before the Catalinas. The the, uh, the Singapore guys were all gone. so. Um, I wonder, um, can you tell us a little bit about the, the
13: Catalina? Uh, yeah, kind of a bit. The, uh, the Catalina had been uh, used uh, fairly extensively in the Pacific towards the end of the war, and it was kept on... Uh, uh, it was brought, brought back to Fiji and established there uh, at, in about 19... 19- Oh, I think fire squadrons started in 1941, you know, uh, and the Catalinas were introduced then, uh, and of course replaced by the Sunderlands uh, in, in 1956, I think, yeah. Something like that, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I did a little bit of flying on the Catalinas around the Pacific. Uh, main function then was air sea rescue and uh, visits to the leper colony uh, in uh, Mokanai. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. So, um, what what's
0: your sort of main uh, memory of the Catalina in terms of uh, are there any operations that stick out? Any rescues that stick out?
13: Uh. Yes, a, a, an early rescue was of a ship that had uh, been missing for some time and the, uh, the squadron actually found it after a number of uh, flights. Uh, the name eludes me. The the, uh, the actual vessel that was recovered was uh, on the tip of my tongue and it was fairly well known at that time. It was quite a noticeable rescue. Uh, and of course there are a number of Uh, flights which assisted the uh, based from Lothala Bay uh, which assisted the islanders they they were pretty uh, short of medical facilities and a lot of the outlying islands had uh, need for uh, some assistance with that so quite often we would pick up patients and bring them back to Fiji, or fly them down, even fly them to Auckland if necessary. So. Okay. Yeah.
0: And uh, and did you do um, with the Catalinas? Did you do open sea landings?
13: Yeah, a couple of times. Uh, what was that one? That, like? uh, that was that was a bit uh, terrifying, uh, but at uh, the first time. Uh, but they, as long as it wasn't. Uh, too rough. The uh, the technique was to to for the pilot to land them onto the face of, uh, or onto the back of a swell, and it worked surprisingly well. And the uh, the Catalina of that day it wasn't an amphibious Catalina at all. It was a, a PB2B1, uh, to be exact. Uh, they're very robustly built, and uh, uh, they survived quite well, although. Uh, probably a little better than the Sunderland could have managed. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I've been told that the uh, the Sunderland didn't do the open sea stuff. Oh no, no. The the the, the floats got knocked off. I, yeah. I actually there's on two ferry flights for Sunderland, and on the first one when we returned to Hobsonville, in the landing it was uh, misjudged a little bit, and we lost the port float. Oh. Uh, it got knocked off. So we finished up one wing down. It was all right, uh, but we needed to. Uh, all the crew climb out on on the wing and and get it upright again and then the the marine section came and towed us to a mooring. So so the the, the Catalinas had a reputation for very very robust, uh, very good engines, uh, Pratt & Whitney engines, and they had a a big endurance. We would frequently fly for uh, in excess of 10, maybe 12 hours. which in the search and rescue field is, is a uh, big advantage. Yeah. Yes.
0: Yeah, I can see that.
13: <laughs> yeah, mind <laughs> it, the Sunderland's could do quite well too, but
0: uh, uh, in, in the Catalinas, did you have two flight engineers on board so that you would swap
13: around like you did in the, in the Sunderlands? Most times, yes. Uh, if you you'd take a break, uh, but it wasn't set up. Uh, quite as well for the longer flights as the Sunderland was. The Sunderland had what was called a galley yeah. and uh, the yeah, one engineer could uh, leave leave the panel. Uh, on the Catalina it was quite common to carry only the one flight engineer but uh, on the longer flights definitely two.
0: Okay, yeah. Yeah. And am I right in thinking on the Catalina that the flight engineer sat up in that
13: yeah, uh, yeah, between the between the engines, yeah. <laughs> up up in the yeah, up Just in the below wing. You below
0: the wing, but is it, yeah. what, what do they call that? It? It's all like a parasol type wing, isn't it? And uh,
13: yes, it is. It's uh, yeah, it's uh, it, it's sort of pendulous, and uh, it, it, the, the where the flight engineers sat, they called the tower. So the right. engineer sat in the tower. In the you tower, know. right? Yeah. yeah, and you couldn't see ahead at all. You could see out the two side windows. You see out the side, all right. Yeah. But uh, well, yeah.
0: I mean, that must have been quite uh, an unusual position then, not being able to see ahead, not knowing where you're going, but just seeing what you're passing. The pike's
13: a little getting used to when you yeah, when you when you're new to it. Yeah, uh, <laughs> but it,
5: uh,
13: yeah. Uh, There was a lot, the flight engineer's role in the Catalina was uh, pretty much the same as the Sunderland, although in the Sunderland you sat with your back to the front, so if you wanted to see anything you had to get up and walk around. Uh, Whereas on the Catalina you sat up there pretty much... uh, in your own little world, you know, and monitored fuel consumption and engines and, and that sort of thing.
0: And, of course, with the Sunderlands, you've got two extra engines to monitor. Did that make the workload more, or, or
13: were they... Filled? No, not really. They're, they're all uh, fuel systems uh, on those aircraft, uh, and the same on modern-day ones. They're linked. So uh, whether you've got two tanks or ten tanks... Doesn't make a great deal of difference. Right. You're, you're still monitoring a quantity of fuel. Right, okay. And, you, and you've got gauges to indicate how you're going with that. Yeah. Okay. Well, can you tell me a little bit
0: about uh, the ferry flights when you brought the uh, Sunderlands out to New Zealand? Where did you bring them from and where did you stop?
13: Oh, ah, uh, we, well, we picked them up from uh, Scotland on the. Uh, on the coast obviously Uh, they had been uh, refurbished in Ireland uh, and then they were flown across and positioned on the Scottish coast we picked them up from there Uh, it was a fairly challenging operation uh, one flight took 17 days to to get back there that was with a slight delay for uh, engine problems so the uh, yeah, they were fairly lengthy endeavors. Uh, very interesting from a cruise point of view, and fairly challenging from the landing at different places. And uh, where you, 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 yeah, you couldn't handle open sea, so you had to have reasonably uh, calm harbor conditions uh, to land.
0: So, which way did you come? Did you come down over Europe and Africa and Asia?
13: Uh, One, f- we varied a bit. The, uh, we did two flights uh, over the Pyrenees uh, and down that way, and then down the uh, uh, down the Canal uh, zone. That was interesting. The, the, uh, the Sunderland is not pressurised, of course, and you, you, anything over. 10,000 feet you have to go on to oxygen uh, and the Pyrenees we had to, we actually had to get to uh, from memory I think about 12,000 feet uh, to make sure we were clear of the highest peak of the of the Alps here yep. yeah okay. and we come down we finish up uh, down on the uh, north coast of Australia and then come down that uh, eastern coast of Australia, uh, and until we got to uh, Brisbane, okay, and then we'd fly across to New Zealand from there. Yeah.
0: I guess that would have been about the highest you would have ever flown. After that, you'd be doing a lot of lot more low-level stuff.
13: Oh yeah, yeah. You you, you normally didn't uh, tackle those sort of high flights at all because they're fairly hard on your on your system and breathing pure oxygen. Uh, it doesn't necessarily do you a whole lot of good in the, <laughs> in the long term. So. Yeah. So, um, how long would it normally have
0: taken to fly a um, Catalina or a Sunderland between Fiji and New Zealand when you were bringing them back back and forth? Oh,
13: that was generally regarded as an eight-hour flight. Yeah. If you did that's, it, did it anything more. under eight, it was was doing quite well. Okay. Though pretty slow.
0: Yeah. yeah. I guess you're yeah. just cruising along, though, aren't you? You're not not in any hurry.
13: Uh, well, I think that. I think uh, memory's a bit dim on that, but uh, I recall that it was probably around about 150 knots at uh, cruising speed. Yeah. Uh, and I think one of the most exciting things I did on the Catalina was the uh, was, I was in Fiji during the Fijian hurricane. Oh yeah,
6: yeah.
13: And we didn't have enough room in the hangar to park the Catalinas, and we didn't want to leave them on their mooring. So we uh, flew uh, one of them, possibly two of them. I can't remember to think of them now, but I, I, I actually crewed on one. We flew it down to Auckland to keep it out of the, the uh, hurricane. So we flew out when we had already had 75 knots blowing while we were on the, on the hard standing. Right. And uh, so we had to, to sort of taxi down the. Uh, The ramp and the Fijian uh, uh, boys used to remove the landing uh, gear, the the wheels, and they'd actually ride down uh, quite brave, really. They'd ride down on the wheels and pull the pin when when we got deep enough and the. The the wheel structure just dropped away. It had it had flotation, yes. And then they uh, they tow it back up up the ramp. Okay. And uh, and then we would keep going. Well, on that day we actually took off inside the breakwater because it was so we didn't need to taxi out into the open sea, and we were heading straight into the teeth of the hurricane. Right. And I, I can't remember what the takeoff speed was now, but we were very close there. We could yep. feel feel the aircraft lifting. So it took a little little run, and we were e- airborne. Wow! And it wasn't. Uh, yeah, it was uh, exciting, but not ever really dangerous. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was. Yeah. And and how about living in Fiji? How was that? Uh, surprisingly good. The the uh, the Fijian it, of course, it was a, it was a British colony yep. then, and administered totally by the, a British uh, control. And I actually met my wife there, and we got married in Fiji. Okay. Uh, she was working for the British government at that time. Yep. But for uh, yeah, the relationships were good, and the, uh, the living standard on the Sala Bay was very good. Uh, we had lots of duty-free... Privileges. Uh, yeah, it was it, all in all, it was a it was a pretty pretty pleasant place. The, the Fijians uh, at at that time were, were probably ignored a bit, the, uh, because they they were still living in village conditions, and it was going to take quite a few years before that advancement was made but in all, all in all it was uh, it was a, a pretty uh, agreeable place to live right okay mm. yeah
0: so it was one of those uh, cushy postings that everybody wanted i guess
13: yes try, try yes out, right? it was uh, yeah uh, it, and it was paid fairly well too because there was an overseas allowance that right, came with it right. so you know if you could get that tacked onto your, your salary yeah yep. the single man did a 12 months tour uh, married men did a two-year okay. tour. Yep. Housing, you, you, there was limited housing. You had to find your own housing, but that wasn't too bad. Okay. Uh, generally, there was plenty of places available that you could rent.
0: Yeah. Oh, All right.
13: Yeah. Quite a moment.
0: Well, thank you very much.
5: You're, I really you're welcome.
0: I'm speaking with Peter Birch. Hi, Peter.
14: G'day, Dave.
0: Now, you were on the Short Sunderlands. That's correct. And your job was uh, on the electrical side, wasn't
14: it? That's correct, I was.
0: Yeah, can you tell me a little bit about that?
14: Well, I first came here in 1955 as a very green uh, 17-year-old. And uh, we are shown these huge aeroplanes that uh, had their various uh, problems, even although we'd only had them for 18 months. it was a wonderful place to work. Um, met a great team of people who are some of them who are still alive, are friends today. Yep. Um, <clears throat> we had to rely to get to our jobs by the Marine section and often as not we would be out there with an Aldous lamp waiting patiently for these guys to come and pick us up. Wow. But um, it, it was a good time. It um, was sort of shorts and plastic sandals. Yep. I'm surprised that the old dreaded skin cancer hasn't turned up since then. Uh, later on I went and did another course my fitness course at Wigram yep. uh, for electricians and then came back to Hobsonville and I'd spent 10 years of my 12 year service at Hobsonville here
0: okay. Okay.
14: Um, <clears throat> since then uh, I've been involved with the Hobsonville Old Boys Association right. <clears throat> a group that's been going for 76 years now Yes. Um, I'm chairman of that our numbers have certainly gone down I can remember in our early days of having to work on Saturdays for this old guys coming to look around, just like's happening today. Yeah, yeah. And then, um, yeah, we've got about uh, 200 names on the books still. Okay. Okay. And we have a meeting in uh, April or early May. Okay. And we had one this year, and we moved from <clears throat> the Sunderland Lounge down at Hobsonville because it's now a community room, and and they're going, they charge for it. Yeah. And to have a short march around to the flagpole where some years ago we put a memorial, yep. uh, that's Observable Lands Company, the Air Force and Hobby Old Boys, yes. uh, we had to close the road off, so we, we meet at Hobby RSA now, which has worked out really, really well. Right, OK,
0: yeah, that makes sense. Mm. Um, just getting back to the Sunderlands, uh, on a, any given day, how many Sunderlands would you have had uh, moored down <clears> at... at um, at Hobsonville or or around
14: there? Uh, Probably three or four and um, traditionally there was always one in the hangar having the maintenance that that we would do on it. In later years uh, we got a device, a floating dock called a Braby um, and they were pulled in stern first and it made us servicing guys or maintainers as we're called today uh, so much easier and that you could walk around and do your job.
0: And uh, what sort of things would you have to do um, in terms of the electrical system? Uh, would you be having to strip out wiring and, and rewire? No, electrical? no. That, that would
14: would happen under major servicing, and that was done at uh, Teal Mechanics Bay. Oh, okay. um, odd modifications, but uh, we would do a, a, what's called a daily inspection in those days, wander around and check all the lights and things that were electrical and made work. And every couple of weeks, we'd have to change the batteries. Yep. Um, which was a little bit of a task. There were four of them normally. Um, But when they went off to Fiji, we had to put two spare ones in just in case. um, But corrosion was probably one of the major um, things that gave us some headaches in the salt atmosphere. Of course, yes. Mm.
0: So um, you're based at Hobsonville, and the squadron was in Fiji, were you part of 5 Squadron at Hobsonville or were you a maintenance unit? We were
14: part of a maintenance unit and then um, uh, later in in life when I was, uh, when Fiji was about to close, um, I would go up there a number of times because the guys up there um, wanted to come home and do various things and I was quite happy to go to Fiji for a couple of weeks. Right, yeah. yeah. um, So that's when I became part of, I guess, 5 Squadron.
0: Right, okay, I got you, yeah, yeah. Mm. And um, did you get much uh, in
14: the way of flying and um, test uh, flights I, I I went as, as much as I could because I enjoyed it. Um, we would all s- always uh, go test flying after a, an inspection. Um, one night I got a phone call at home, I lived on the North Shore, um, to be at Beach Haven to pick up a launch at, at, at midnight because I was going to the Chathams. Uh, and I had to set up uh, some batteries, and, and we went to the Chathams to uh, pick up a blue baby. Oh,
5: wow! And
14: uh, we landed in this middle of the storm, in this bleak, bleak place. Uh, it was a bit rough getting in, and the um, the radar, radar got a medal out of it. I can't remember what it was, but, yeah. So we waited around there, and uh, this little baby came aboard, was put in an incubator, and we flew home again. Oh, wow. Mm. So that was something different.
5: Yeah.
0: There's so many elements that Five Squadron has done and, and does today that uh, I don't think the general public even knows about and things like that. The, yeah. the, you know, re, I mean, that that baby may well be still around now. It right? is, uh, yes, yes. Yep. There's
14: been a, uh, um, a note in the Air Force news about, it's probably th- 30 odd years old now. and be uh, more than that, surely. Mm, yeah. <laughs> but yet lived and, and the captain has since died. Okay. I've... Yeah just forgotten his name but yeah
0: right, right yeah brilliant um and what a great reunion
10: it has
14: been hasn't yeah, it yes yeah. <coughs> um there's a small committee that, that's running this um led by gordon rag yes yeah. and uh yeah. i think there's probably six or eight of us on it and uh, we had a few more meetings than usual to get us this far yeah and uh we've made some donations to the squadron to to help fund some of the exercise yes been well worth it
0: oh absolutely mm. what a great turnout too I mean gee how many people were in that hangar last night it's hundreds there, there were hundreds yeah. yes yeah, fantastic mm. well thank you very much Peter right it's up. been a pleasure to talk pleasure Dave, to you Dave David's good yeah cheers yep I'm talking with Harry Hyder, who was a special guest of the event today. Hi Harry. Hello. Now can you tell the listeners why you're a special guest of the squadron?
15: Um, I just had brain surgery for a tumour that was in my brain. Right. Yeah.
0: And uh, you were uh, invited along to the event and the squadron really turned it on for you didn't they?
15: Yeah it was an awesome day. Did lots of cool things.
0: So tell me about what
15: happened. Um well we went to a flight simulator and I got to be a pilot and fly around Auckland. Uh we went through a plane and saw all the stuff that goes on in there. We looked through um what they do in the air force and like the rescue and all that sort of stuff.
0: I heard that you were a natural in the flight simulator that uh, even the the pilots there were quite impressed.
15: Yeah, I got to um land second try uh, perfectly just on the Landing Tarmac.
0: That's pretty fantastic. Yeah,
15: yeah, it was so much fun.
0: So what did what what was the best thing of the day?
15: I think the flight simulator was the best thing of the day. I really enjoyed it.
0: Do you think you'd like to become a pilot?
15: Definitely. Yeah, it was so much fun. Just even they said like they thought I was a natural, so I mean, be really cool. Yeah.
0: And how cool are those Orion's? They're pretty neat, aren't they? Oh
15: man, they're they're so amazing. Like everything that goes on in them and like the bomb bays and the, everything is just crazy and how much work that goes in the engine and yeah yeah. yeah.
0: and you got to talk to some pilots uh, actual Orion yeah. pilots
15: yeah I got to talk to some pilots I got to sit in the actual pilot seat of the Orion um they, they had lots of information to tell me and yeah it was just as I said so much fun yeah absolutely yeah
0: was there anything else that sort of impressed you then?
15: um just uh, all the people, everyone was so nice and treated me so well. Had an awesome day and yeah, it was just so much fun. They're a great squadron, aren't they? Oh, awesome! The best. Just yeah. Are,
0: are you involved? Uh, I know you're fifteen. Yeah. Are you involved with um, the Air Training Corps, or do you have any sort of uh, mm. anything that you're planning to get into the Air Force with, or anything like that?
15: Well, I've been thinking about it, like if there was anything that I could get involved with um, after a while, because it's just the surgery on.
0: Of course, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so
15: I've been thinking about that, like how to get involved and maybe even get training to be a pilot or something, yeah.
0: Brilliant, brilliant. And it's, it's such a great career. Yeah, it really, is. it really is. Yeah, and those guys, um, particularly with 5 Squadron, uh, they do so much for this country, and people yeah. don't really realise how much they do.
15: Yeah, they showed me, like, their Uncharted book and actually how much they do, which people actually don't know. It's crazy.
0: What were the things that stood out the most that uh, surprised you about the squadron?
15: Um, well, I didn't really know, like, the... everything that they did and, like, just everything that they did and just how, like, nice they were and just... Yeah. Just, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Have you got any final thoughts?
15: Um... No, it was just a big thank you to all the squadron and everybody that helped me go through all the, um, the air, is it an airport or, um, air base, uh, really. air base yeah, yeah, the air base. It was just so much fun and I enjoyed the entire day. It was awesome. Well, well done, Harry. Thank mm. you. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>
0: I'm talking with uh, Hilton Baker, who's the maintenance flight commander, are you? Yep. Yeah, off number five squadron. Um, can you give us a little bit of a, a rundown on what your job entails, really? Um,
16: I, I guess I'm, I'm the com- commander for the maintenance flight looking after p 3 K2 Orion's and, and if you are to define that, largely personnel management and planning. Yep. Um, it comes with a, an inherent engineering aspect around uh, the aircraft and servicing the aircraft, maintenance of the aircraft, uh, where I'm, I guess I'm the senior engineer on the unit and responsible for the technical standards of the aircraft and, and how it's maintained. Uh, and I, I have a, if you like, a dual responsibility um, to both the commanding officer of the squadron for production of assets, yep. as well as then uh, to the senior engineer on base around the standards that we maintain them to and how we maintain them.
0: So, how many uh, ground staff? How many mechanical staff have you got underneath you? Uh,
16: so, maintenance flight consists of roughly seventy personnel. Yep. They are split into two shifts, uh, and there are six trades within that. So, you have a mix of uh, engineers. So, myself, my two deputies, and uh, one of our junior engineers is a trainee. The engineers, and then we uh, we go into suppliers, who basically logisticians. And then we're looking at aircraft trade who are the blackanders, engines, airframes, hydraulic systems. Uh, You then have avionics trade who look after electronics and electrical systems and instruments, and then safety and surface and armors.
0: And of course then uh, after that, outside of the squadron you've also got uh, support from maintenance support squadron, you're looking after uh, components that come off the aircraft—is that correct?
16: A- absolutely, yeah. It's um, <clears throat> I guess when you when you consider aircraft, um, it's effectively the well, it's a, it's a bit of a cliched phrase, but the tip of the spear, more the tip of the pyramid, I think. When you talk aviation, um, is that the aircraft on the line is at the very front? Um, the maintenance team here are the ones who deal directly with the aircraft. But then, yeah, a lot of uh, second line and third line units that, that go into feeding it, without which we can't do our job effectively. So, uh, as an example, the part comes off the aircraft as being unserviceable. It's replaced by the maintainer, so the aircraft then remains serviceable. That part is then passed to the supply store, yeah. who then will pass it to the relevant uh, unit within uh, maintenance uh, maintenance wing. They will then assess it and repair it if, they, if it's within their capabilities. If it's not, they pass it back to the supply system, who then actually pass it away to an overhaul right. vendor type thing, so a third level of maintenance, um, where it's repaired and then moved back through the system. So at each, th- there's two s- two systems interacting through there, I guess is a uh, material support wing, which is the supply log- logistics side of it, who are responsible for moving it and for paying for the repair of it, uh, as well as the maintenance wing, who actually will do the assessing and provide the technical expertise to the to the confinement.
0: So how long have you been on the squadron yourself?
16: This time round? Yeah. Uh,
0: <laughs> well, any time.
16: <coughs> oh, so I guess my, my involvement with the P3 started in two thousand, end of 2008 when I was posted to our uh, second line engineering support, so technical support for their own, and I was the staff officer in that cell. Um, I did a number of years there and then managed to come to 5Squadron as the deputy maintenance flight commander
5: yeah.
16: um, and spent time there. Um, some of the best years of my life. Uh, um, and, a, and a great, great opportunity. Um, certainly, as the the role we play with the deputies at the moment, uh, my deputies, is that they really have the run of the squadron, right. uh, or the run of the flight. Sorry, uh, and that they are the ones who deal with the day-to-day flying. Um, whereas, I guess the maintenance flight commander role is one where I provide an umbrella um, to to hold back, if you like, some of the the pressures or the um, interference if you like that's coming from outside yep. but also to provide them with the resource um, they need and the tools they need to do their job um, not only them but also their flights under them so yeah deputy maintenance flight commander all did that for uh, a 18 months i think and then was promoted and pushed back upstairs and went to become the officer commanding of the technical support cell and so had a had the orion cell working for me as well as the hercules cell yep. and so it was the fleet manager for both of those and then i uh, was fortunate enough be twenty months ago, December fourteen to be posted in as MFC five. Okay, and uh, I have had a
0: blast. Do you, um, being so senior in that infrastructure, do you get to go away with the squadron much on exercises and that, or, or does that fall to the guys just below you to go away, and you have to stay here and look after everything?
5: <coughs>
16: Let's say um. It's a great question so
5: I've
16: I guess there's, there's two parts to that one is well two ways to look at it one is you're right in terms of the maintenance flight commander I essentially run the maintenance flight and uh, and look it's a it's a poor leader that uses the what I say goes type of approach um, but I've I've experienced it shall I say as uh, in other in previous roles on fire squadron yep. where the maintenance flight commanders have turned up and said oh, I'm taking that trip I'm doing that trip uh, that sort of thing. Um, I guess that doesn't fit my leadership style and my management style and certainly my approach um, has been that like I said my deputies are the ones who run the unit yep. and so effectively my role here is to provide them with what they need to do the job um, and part of that is that they, um, they take uh, the majority of the trips overseas as needed. Um, if it doesn't suit or it you know, we need to, I'll, I'm happy to go away and certainly uh, last year I spent four months in the Gulf with Op Takapu, um, but um, otherwise I leave it, leave it to them they the by young keen, enthusiastic, yep. I've sort of had that opportunity and I'm, I'm more than happy to sit here and do my job uh, at, at my desk if you like and let them actually run
0: those things. Right. And there must be some challenges trying to keep a fleet of 50 year old aircraft um, flying, what, what are the biggest challenges these days?
16: I think in, the, in some of the briefs, i used use the example of it, so 1966, New Zealand was importing British cars, so the, the car that came out the year was the Rover 3500, right. and so if, oh, I had to look at photos on Google, um, but yeah, <laughs> I wasn't around in 66, but um, essentially we've got a Rover 3500 that's had an engine that's been overhauled more than a dozen times, yeah. and it's got the same rims, you know, and new tyres, um, but it's got a massive flash stereo. So that presents a whole lot of challenges in itself, Uh, and I guess if you're using the car analogy, you know, where do you? Rover probably don't make parts for that car anymore. Um, In the same way, Lockheed stopped making parts for the P three a wee while ago. They do; um, they're becoming more responsive in supporting the aircraft, but I think the uh, the international fleet size is starting to dwindle a little. So it it gets to a point where it's not actually economically viable for them as a as a commercial entity, to, to keep stay in that game yeah so that's one aspect is, is getting the parts um, i guess the other side of things is that the aircraft is starting to get a little bit tired in, in some aspects uh, certainly not unsafe but just we are seeing breakages in places more often in places that we wouldn't expect to um, and part of our part of our job is an engineering fraternity if you like um, so maintenance aside but the technical engineers um, is around making sure that the aircraft is as safe to fly on the day that we buy it as, as it is on the day that we retire it um, and so it's really a, a quite a burden that goes on with that there's a whole lot of things that go in in the background around um, liaison with the OEM with Lockheed Martin with uh, with other operators the, the prime operator up until now has been the US Navy but now they're downsizing their fleet and they're, they're going to become one of the smaller operators the international community is trying to work out
5: well, how, do,
16: how do we how does this work now? Right. Whereas in the past we just went to US Navy and they had money and they had people and all sorts of things. We're well, now as a community having to work out how do we do this. Mm-hmm. So those sort of um, those sort of questions and, and mechanisms are being worked through as to how do we keep this going. Uh, and certainly I think it's it's influenced a lot of the changes or the, the decisions to replace the aircraft when we when we are going to. Yeah. Um, the other piece of that, I guess, is when you start thinking about putting a you know, a state of the art brand new stereo into a very old car. Yeah. Um we we ran into all sorts of issues during the project, which was you know, I guess, you know, we're talk, we talking about a difference in technical standards and in the nineteen sixties very, very different and I've got to take my hats off, you know, the plane was essentially designed with with draft boards and, and pencils. You know, it was fantastic. This was amazing. But the techniques, if you like, and the technology has moved on. And now how do you, how do you marry up the latest technology with those older aircraft? Um, yeah. The software's a classic uh, power quality. You know, when you're, when you're getting dirty power off off uh, transformer rectifier units on the aircraft, and it's gone from having a, say, a, might be a five volt um, sort of uh, tolerance to now it's uh, millivolts or less tolerance for digital systems. Right. Um, they, they don't like it um, and they, they tend to do funny things so you know those sort of things along with then um, so that's the if you like the, the purely engineering piece I think the other aspect of it is too is that around the de- design philosophy you know so we're taking uh, modern systems which are designed around um, an aircraft philosophy or a design philosophy that's very different so whereas in the past uh, when the aircraft were designed it was it had the flight engineer at the heart of it. Yes. So the man sitting in the middle seat in the front of the aircraft, he the aircraft would provide him with all the information and he was the brains. He made the decisions based on what he got and he, and he responded accordingly. Um, whereas you move forward to today's technology, well now uh, with the advances we've had in reliability and, and materials and the like, engines and systems are designed to be damage tolerant to a level and so what uh, what a system or a system design will do now is it will it will hold information about an error or about damage to itself for a period while it assesses itself and once it's decided it's got enough information it'll tell you what it's doing right Um, so when we start marrying new brand new systems around engine indicating systems with old engines that are designed to have someone respond fairly quickly um, you start to get some disconnects, if you like, in terms of those. Now, certainly, they though, um, what I'm not saying is that our aircraft suffers these faults, but, but they were big considerations we had when we went through the likes of the systems upgrade project where you're, where you're starting to install these systems into the aircraft. Well, how do, you, how do you manage these and how do you marry these things together? Um, and certainly presented a number of challenges from an engineering point of view right. uh, and also I think from an operational point of view and uh, do, how do we mitigate that, uh, how do we now decide what's what's safe and what's
0: not. It must be a difficult period too when you're bringing in that new system and you've still got two, maybe two old ones on the line and two new ones on the line and you're working in two different systems at the same time, how, did, how confusing did that get?
16: Oh it got worse than that. <laughs> so um, so I was here as, as deputy when we got rid of the last uh, P3K um, and uh, when, you, when you bring a new aircraft online what you don't do is just turn up and fly it and so I guess in the old days we, we did a, a degree of that it was informal sort of you got in and you went for a fly and as long as it sort of felt right or you know it, it sort of did what you wanted to and you could, you could keep it safe you were okay where you go. Yeah. What we tend to do now is we go through a very formal uh, introduction into service process, operational test and evaluation as well as um, in the background we do logistics test and evaluation to see if it meets what we need and, uh, and that we fully understand the capability that we're getting. So when the first uh, P3K2 arrived and it was the prototype aircraft, 04, um, in 2011 and also I think we had a, a production aircraft as well turn up shortly afterwards. There was some there was an overlap in there that meant both arrived at the same time. Yep. Um, we still had uh, one P3K on the line and the P3K2s weren't actually authorised for much other than testing and evaluation yeah. and so we it was an interesting time um, as a maintenance flight you you couple that with the fact that a lot of the gear on the aircraft is under warranty that you can't go diving into stuff because you're going to break the warranty or you're going to avoid warranties uh, as well as the fact that you don't actually know a lot about the systems. The the length of the project meant that we had people put in for training for maintenance who were assisting with the project but got to the end of their posting cycle and then we moved on. And so you, a lot of that intention around the, the wave, the surge of, of training um, almost fizzed out right, as we got towards the end. So so from that point of view we had some really unique challenges at the time around trying to get understand the aircraft, get it operating it, and be able to maintain it uh, in a reasonable fashion. Um, coupled with that was that we you know i guess our government obligations around uh, search and rescue um, having to hold a two-hour notice to move aircraft um, we only had one aircraft we could do that with Uh, if we were doing taskings or other operational requirements we generally only had one aircraft we could do that with and so what it meant was we were trying to keep one aircraft 100 percent serviceable uh, for for an extended period Um, interesting (laughs) yeah (laughs) Uh, created us more than a few headaches. Uh, uh, one, one that springs to mind is uh, I think the last, week, last working week of the year uh, leading into Christmas um, we were standing down on the Friday, half day on the Friday and on the Wednesday we had a flight, came back from a flight and it had cracked a windscreen um, and, and that was on our own aircraft that could hold search and rescue over the break so we ended up working um basically winding up the maintenance shifts again yep. instead of the, instead of the wind down of christmas winding them back up and uh and then the thursday the the wednesday thursday night into the friday we pretty much pulled a 24-hour shift um so the guys had it on the friday window in um the, the sealant was in it it was all glued up ready to go and uh what what it meant was then on the Saturday we had to have a small team come in once the, the sealant and dried to do the pressurisation run the final runs and then we could make it serviceable and sit on the line so mm. so it's those sort of things which you then you incur additional burden around trying to maintain that aircraft so it's, it's been an interesting journey um, certainly for me it's been really um, rewarding coming back after those experiences to see us with a K2 up and running yep. um, and the whole fleet being K2 and not only that but also having all of our aircraft through the process uh, where we now have um, three to four aircraft on the line as opposed to one to two right, that we had early in the project.
0: And also um, with the heavy maintenance, uh, it always used to be that there'd be one Orion sitting down at Woodburn with safe Safeair uh, having its full. Uh, group servicing?
16: Group group, yeah, yeah. Depot level maintenance? Yeah.
0: Yep, yep. And um, is it now going to be the same uh, now that Airbus has bought that or is there a different contractor that's um, going to be coming in to do the Orions or?
16: Ah, so so look as, as far as I know, it's, um, the services remained un, unchanged. Okay. Um, and certainly we've got a, a I think quite a good relationship with the Air. Oh, I think they're still called there now. Oh. Um, yeah. So, so, so you're right. There was um, you bought out Safe Air bought out by Airbus from from Air New Zealand. But yeah, they they still provide our depot level servicing, right? Our group servicing for our aircraft. And uh, at the moment, I've got two aircraft down there. One, two, three. Yeah, two aircraft down there at the moment so one on group one on phase I'm due to get both of them out in December right
0: okay yep. so do you um, have to continually A's with um, what's happening down there with the aircraft as well or is it someone else's responsibility once they've gone there you don't have to worry about them
16: I, I, I do but not not how you think okay I'm always robbing them of parts <laughs> okay yeah yep, yep. so um, yeah so o- obsolescence and I guess te- technological obsolescence with the computers and the, and the upgrading them has meant that I've had to I've got a smaller spares ball in some some components so I've had to actually take stuff off the group aircraft so it's sitting on the ground for three months not doing anything it doesn't need it I'll take it um, that's we're working on those things in terms of uh, component upgrades to ensure that we don't have that problem in the future but uh, yeah we we're robbing things reasonably regularly uh, we also have a we have a separate unit a fleet planning unit um, within their second line engineering support who Effectively, are the, the liaison with Safe Air and with um, Aircraft Maintenance Squadron who do our island intermediate level maintenance. Yep. And they, the fleet planners is really are the ones who um, schedule uh, when when those um, servicings are going in and out, and actually work with the contractors around. Okay, when are, when is it going to arrive? What dates? How is it going to turn up? When are we going to get it back? What do we need to do? All those sort of things. Yep. Uh, there's Safe Air have a, a if you like a defined set of um, capabilities and skills in their workers uh, engine running isn't one of them um, and it, and due to the competency you know and, and the upkeep required for that yeah. it's not likely that they'll have it and it was no different when we had the we owned the rd before SAFE took it over yeah um, they we, they call on us when the when the aircraft's ready to run we send a team down they go and do the runs they check it over make sure the books lined up get it ready for the test flight and okay. then uh, safely handle it. Te- well, yep. our crews go down and do the test flight, safe safely handle the maintenance around that. Right.
5: Yep.
4: Okay. Uh, during the demonstration the presentation you gave us, uh,
7: you showed a very good graphic of fatigue management, um, FRMs, and so on that you were experiencing on deployments with your maintenance team, where uh, if if you continued operating them at the level that they were going and the, the high rotation of maintaining and exercise and so on. They were actually getting so fatigued; it was like they were—they were so like the equivalent of drunk enough that they couldn't drive a car. Uh, what kind of fatigue risk management system did you enact to be able to track all that, and then to be able to uh, prove that you needed more people? I
16: made one up. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Uh, look, and, and look—it's um, yeah, it's a—it's one of those things that's been a little—I um, think a little feather in our cap. Uh, certainly, when you think about my own personal experience um, has been that there hasn't been a lot of consideration around that and a lot in the previous times maintenance have been the whipping boys in terms of well, we just need to get on with it type thing and so what we were looking for was some way some objective way to say well actually here's some data that says we're not well or that we can't do this um, and uh, and look the the I guess if you tried to do that in, in, a, in an earlier climate, you wouldn't have been able to because the organization's only matured to a point where it's willing to say no. I think, you know, whilst we've had leaders for a long time that have said, just say, put your hand up and say no, the problem was, I guess, you had a whole raft of middle management that just didn't want to know. So so I think the, the organisation matured to that point where it, it was willing to accept the data. What we need to look at was how do we, A, how do we gather the data and how do we present it? Uh, and certainly what we've... Um, what we've done in this regard is, we've taken a, um, what would you say a, a preemptive approach. So when we know uh, the flying program for, um, for an exercise, we get that uh, from our planning cells, and we put on a maintenance cycle. So I, I, we, I, we wrote a paper around it. We put on a, a maintenance cycle over that, which generally for the Iran consists of four hours prior to prior to takeoff. So we arrive, um, and you'll have a fifth hour of, depending on where your transport or uh, your accommodation is, but we arrive through two hours worth of um, dispatch on the aircraft, um, de-blanket de- um, levels, fluid levels, checks, um, adjourned once over the aircraft, and then you've got two hours for the crew to do their pre-flight, and then they're, they're in the air, they're away on the mission. Um, that mission can go anywhere from three hours, or well, half an hour if things go wrong, but uh, through to sort of, you know, eight to twelve hours. When they come back, We've then got uh, conservatively three hours worth of work to um, check the aircraft over and do the after flight, um, do the paperwork associated with that, and then put the aircraft to bed. That, and then if there's a rectification on that, that blows out and starts to stretch out. So if you say four hours at the beginning plus the flight, you know, three to five at the end, and then if you put a six-hour flight in the middle, that's where you're talking a 15-hour day for a person. Now our policy, our technical policy at the moment, limits us to a 12-hour shift. That's our maximum duty length. Um, it also has a, a get out of jail free clause where it says, for operational flexibility, you can stretch these.
5: Right.
16: So oh, I, I have an issue with that. Um, so how do we define operational flexibility? Um, and so what we've and experience says that people have dif- interpreted that differently um, to, to varying degrees of effect. Yeah. Um, so what we did with them was we said, okay, well that preemptive one, we have then a picture of what a single maintenance team, if you like, so if, uh, ignore a team size, but to say if one person was working those sort of hours, how would they look? Um, and then we can put that into, uh, we used a tool, I uh, used our physiologist on base um, and used the tool he provided, uh, FAST fatigue analysis scheduling tool, and that gave us a result where we could compare it against blood alcohol content, um, equivalent blood alcohol content, and, and then say that okay well this starts to give us some facts. Again, the, the problem with, with all fault finding or problem, you know, problem solving is that people don't want to hear problems; they want to hear solutions. So, what do you do with that data? Um, so then we start looking at, okay, well, I can keep pouring people at that, but the problem is, you know, if I've got a team size of one or a hundred, and they're doing those hours, they're all going to be the same. Mm. Um, so how do I how do I cut this cake? How do we look at it differently? And that's where we started. Then thinking about, um, okay, well, single shift is pretty basic. What about if I put one man on at the front just to do the dispatch bit? and then I put one man on at the end to do the rectification team. Well, Those then produce two separate maintenance cycles, if you like, that can be analysed individually. And so we do that. So if the first one shows up as being a good, or we've got a gut feel that it's not going to work, we go straight for that one, which we call our enhanced uh, single shift. And then we analyse that. Um, And then beyond that, we've got a double shift, where actually two guys doing separate, completely separate longer, longer duration shifts. Uh, what it what it means is that you still need to look at it and provide a balance. So what what we do when we do it is we don't look for the perfect. Everyone's in the green and, and you're okay. We know that there's variation in it. You know that you know some days you'll do three hours on rectification, other days you'll do. You know your full twelve hour shift. So, what we want to do is actually provide a a, a representation to. Um, to the deck commander while we're there or to the from the DEA the the engineering representative that's going that manages the maintenance flight on the deployment they do a report before they go and they that gets presented to me and they basically show me how they've done the analysis they put in the flying schedule they overlay it and then they provide me with the fast graphs and their decision around what shift size they're going to use they justify how many people from that they then tell me how they're going to mitigate it, where their risks are and how they're going to mitigate those so we may say that look you know after at a point, say on day seven and day eight of, of an exercise, there is a risk that towards the end of the shift, um, if we go long, we're going to be in trouble. You know, we're going to have guys reaching fatigue points. So what that allows us to do is say, okay, well we know we're carrying some risk there. Let's be risk aware, not, rather rather risk averse. Let's be risk aware. I pass that to the deck commander to say, hey, watch out for this stuff here. My my engineer representative goes knows he needs to look for that stuff as he goes, and we and we we then proceed with that. So from my point of view, it's that scientific approach which says, hey, I'm not, I'm not trying to, um, you know, go for the gold-plated solution here, but I'm actually trying to trying to strike the right balance of personnel welfare with actually operational outputs. The other piece that goes in behind that, I guess, is the, we look, we did, uh, as part of the paper, we did a first principle sort of analysis of um, what do I need to do maintenance? What, is a, what does a shift look like? and what are the numbers um, and when I say first principles it wasn't based on a whole lot of data or research it was more just a okay well you know from a, from a logic point of view this that the other uh, and that sort of drew out then a, a, common, um, a common shift size if you like or a single shift size which was one engineer, one supplier, um, we needed a, an aircraft trade team which was one senior NCO, a supervisor and then three producers and then an avionics senior NCL supervisor and three producers for him and then a armament or s either or um, supervisor and one of each of those trades as producers under them. So we looked to again balance the team so that we were risk aware around what might come up and what might not yeah. but also then that, that formed the basis, the genesis then for going okay well a single shift if we can do it fatigue wise is 14 people if we need to do an enhanced, which is a, a small dispatch team and a rectification team, again we analysed that and it said 16 people. Um, so it, gave, it started, to, started to give us some some firmer ground to actually stand on when we presented that data to, to ops. Okay. Does that sort of
0: make,
16: make sense? Yeah, that sounds good. I guess the, the, the follow up to that then is, um, so it's great pre-empting it. What's what's the difference? What's What's the reality? And so what we did, uh, in fact prior to this, was when we were on Takapu we had some suspicions. We, we originally went for four months, uh, it was two two-month rotations, um, part way through the second one they decided, hang on, we like what you're doing, New Zealand government said, you're going to stay for 12, and so the second rotation pushed out over Christmas and did four months there, and then we had two five-month rotations um, for the rest of it. My observations when I, uh, when I turned up there after coming into the job and went over there to, to do a stint as the engineer was that um, the guys looked to be bone-tied. Yep. You know, we had 11 guys working in, in the heat of the Arabian summer and they looked had it. Um, so we, I again set about working with the physiologist around um, what do we do here, is this, is this morale you know, am I seeing the effects of a low morale because they've been here for so long, or is this fatigue? And we wanted to gather that data, so we uh, we worked on a recording performer, which basically a sheet. It asked them some simple questions that they filled out when they got into work. So, um, what time did you wake up this morning? Um, how much sleep did you get last night? What was the quality? You know, how would you rate the quality of your sleep? Using some, uh, I guess, some measures that they had, um, and we collected a whole lot of data for each person. And we did that over a, a five month shift. We did, uh, not, not for the whole five months, but we picked a, sort of a week a month where we'd gather data for seven days from the guys and then bring that home and analyze it. Now it wasn't um, wasn't exactly foolproof in the end. We we didn't quite hit the money in terms of we needed to get data every day, so whether they work or not. So there were some holes in there in terms of days off they weren't doing data. But what we ended up doing was we put some conservative data in in the middle there, which actually had, made, had the effect of of softening the outcomes, if you like, so it made it appear better, um, and but the analysis still showed that a number of times we had fatigue issues with people. Um, a number of them, you know, most of them, we were pretty aware of anyway, and they occurred at times when we were aware of them. So what it, what it allowed us then to do is feedback into the system to say, okay, well, there's a problem here. We don't have enough people on this deployment because we're doing this to them. Um, and potentially the, the, the durations too long and so we, we put in a paper around that to say right, we, we recommend these sort of things here based on this but it um, but we carry that on into the exercise that we've done this year so whilst we now preempt the exercise with the flying program and we predict what we think it's going to be like we're also recording data from the guys while we're away yep. to then put back into fast when we get home and then compare the two to say okay will we be we close or not. You know, my, my aim is to say, look, ultimately, you know what? Uh, we were nowhere near. And if I can, if I can justify why, you know, that it was it was a hard mission or hard exercise, but look, our fatigue wasn't even close. Yeah. Well, maybe we can use that to then trim numbers to say actually we're, we're probably a little over. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it comes back and says it's the same or worse, you know, then we start to look at okay, well, does it go the other way? Yeah. So we're trying to get smart about these things. Um, what we're moving into now is we're, we're trying different products with the aim being of providing a, if you like a simple traffic light around guys when they turn up at work in the morning. So rather than pre or post exercise, actually on the morning when you turn up to work, um, in one location, the, the engineer can sit there with with, a, with an iPad and you've answered some questions on another iPad and it tells him, hey look do I need to watch that guy or is he actually really good? You know, or, or watch out this guy didn't sleep last night. you you need to come over here and you can do this job today, that sort of thing, you know, so we're actually positively looking after the health of air and the worthiness of our aircraft rather than just sort of relying on, you know, work hard, play hard sort of thing, you know, have a good time but uh, make sure you do your job, so yeah, it's part of working smarter I think.
0: Uh, And also, um, sort of related to that, when you're deployed in places like maybe up in the tropics or uh into the middle east or even just going down to Antarctica which you guys do these days um does that make any difference to the maintenance of the aircraft the different environments that they're in is there much of a big difference yes
8: oh um
16: yeah look so it's closer to home so when we go to Antarctica um we generally don't take Maintenance with us, we're weight limited when we go that way, so not huge opportunities there. So our flight engineers uh, generally have a maintenance certificate with them, so they can do limited maintenance.
5: Yeah.
16: Um, so in that context, the preparation though is uh, there's a reasonable amount of prep goes into getting an aircraft ready to go down there. Uh, I'm trying to think off the top here, yeah, but some of the extreme stuff which we don't we don't do because we've changed fluids already. You know, some the book talks about some of the extreme stuff changing engine oils, changing hydraulic fluids and that sort of thing to match the conditions you're going to. Um, the the range of the, the, the products we've got at the moment is fine so we don't do that but we do prepare the other aircraft in other ways. Other way, going to the gulf, um, we have um, additional servicings we do when we're in the gulf, so a lot of the sense lines you get, um, so we're sensing atmospheric pressure. Um, when, when you're flying in the gulf there's just a haze everywhere, um, you can't escape it and so it's just... Diabolical, um, sandblast aircraft, I'm saying. Um, so, what we do is a lot of the sense lines as part of our 35 day servicing, so there's additional servicings on that to blow them out, to clear them out, make sure that we're good. And then when we come home, there's additional engine inspections and those sort of things to make sure that the aircraft's still okay.
0: Well, thank you very much for your time. It's been uh, fascinating to hear the engineering side of um, the squadron. And, you know, the public in New Zealand always hears about their Ryan's going off and doing rescues and searches and all sorts of things like that. Um, But I don't think they would generally think about what goes on behind the scenes and you guys keeping those aircraft flying. And it's a very, very important part of it, isn't
16: it? Oh, look, it's um, like I say, the maintenance and engineering is, is part of that, making sure that we bring our generally our friends in the green suits Yeah. and that uh like I said the aircraft is safe to fly on the last day of operations as it is on the day on the first day um but I I, look I I agree with you you know maintenance isn't sexy it doesn't sell newspapers so um so generally people don't see us but uh what I like about being here at five is that generally the guys in the hangar our maintainers know the job they do Uh, and I think there's a quiet confidence among the team around the job they do because they are They are the, uh, if you like, the the leaders in their fields, in the Air Force. Um, And look, I think your average maintainer doesn't want to be in front of a camera or doesn't want the fact advertised they're they're hard workers that just like to get on with the job.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Well, that's just been a few of the thousands of stories that must be connected with the squadron. I want to thank Number 5 Squadron for their hospitality and their kindness during my visit. I want to particularly thank Wing Commander D.J. Hunt, Flying Officer C.R. Lee Mann, Iron Public Relations Officer Simon Eichelbaum, and in particular, Pilot Officer Jack Barnett for all his help. And to all the members, past and present, of No. 75 Squadron, I'd like to wish you a happy 75th anniversary from the Wings Over New Zealand show.
6: That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.